Hello, surprise, and happy birthday to us. You are listening to Riot Act, the alternative music podcast, with myself, Stephen Hill, and himself, Mr. Renfrey Deadman. Renfrey, how are you? Hello, I'm very well. It's a lovely day, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to sitting here and listening to you for a long time. <laughs> hey, well, what could be what could be a better birthday treat than listening to me? <laughs> well, quite. quite. Yeah. Um, happy birthday, mate. It is our second birthday. Thanks, man. Happy birthday. Um, yeah. Happy birthday. It's quite a quite a thing. And usually, um, as we do as we did last year, we on our on our birthday, we were gonna plan to do a live show yes. um as a treat for you, the listener, for our, you know, our long term hardened listeners and all the lovely support you've given us over the years. We always like to try and give you something back. Um obviously because of the COVID nineteen pandemic that is still Still a thing, even though a lot of people seem to have just gone, ah, it's not anymore. Uh, it is, as we record. Um, so definitely we couldn't still a re- thing. Yeah. It's definitely still a thing. So we couldn't really give you a live show. Um, but we wanted to give you something. We wanted to give you a special podcast. Now, we do a couple of Classic Album Series podcasts every month. We get them and we stick them on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Riot Act podcast. If you'd like to sign up for those, it's in the £5 a month tier. You will get two album choices every month. One from myself, one from Renfrey. Um, and you get four, four, count them, Rioters reviews as well. Uh, so that seems like quite one, quite good money. Two, three, three four. Lovely. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's pretty good. This has gone a bit Sesame Street, hasn't it? Already it has, yeah. (laughs) Um, But we wanted to give you, we thought, you know, since it's our birthday and we're feeling, you know, very festive and in the mood to be doling out gifts, we thought we would give you a podcast, a special podcast, even if you didn't really want it. Because that's kind of what the subject of today's show sort of did. They gave away an album that you thought, I don't really want this. Um, so we're giving you a podcast that you potentially might not want. So yeah. um, Happy birthday, on this Happy birthday. <laughs> so on this very special podcast, we will be discussing how post-punk band from Ireland became the biggest band on the planet, uh, then the most hated band on the planet, then the most self-conscious band on the planet, how they took it all, threw it all away, reinvented themselves and made the best album stroke albums of their entire career. Um, little bit of a clue to who we're talking about. They've sold somewhere between 150 million and 170 million albums over the years. They've won 22 Grammys. That's more than any other band in the history of the Grammys. They are the second biggest grossing live act behind the Rolling Stones in history ever. Their 360 Degrees tour that started in 2010 is actually the highest grossing tour in history. They are members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they were inducted in their first year of eligibility in 2005. They are Brit Award winners for outstanding contributions to music Music, being the first non-UK band ever to win that award. They're also the only artist to have won that uh, award for Best International Artist three consecutive years running. And they're the only band in history to have a number one album on the US and the UK album charts in the 80s, 90s, noughties and the 10s. Uh, in, two, in part two, we're going to be talking about the 1991 album Actung Baby. But first, in this part... We are going to be going in deep on U2's fifth album and commercial smash hit, The Joshua Tree, which was released on the 9th of March, 1987. So before we kick off, Renfrey, mm-hmm. people may know that I have kind of recently rediscovered my love 
for you too. I did try and hide it and deny it for years. And it's important to A, it's important to acknowledge that. And B, it's trying to work out why someone like me would do such a thing. Mm. So I expect a fairly detailed answer from you here. Why do people seemingly who are listening to this now have gone, oh, you too. Why are you talking about you too? Why do people hate you too? I've been trying to... I've been trying to think about that the last few days. It's not an easy question to answer. Part mm. of me guesses often why people hate bands is the omnipresence of them. We've discussed this with Coldplay. I think you two probably were the proto Coldplay in a sense in their uh, om- omnipresence. Omnipresence. Yep. Uh, it's early in the morning. Apologies, ladies and gents. Um, uh, certainly certainly on the joshua tree i think i think both of these records we're going to be talking about the commercial peak of you two surely yep yep. yeah yeah. i think so yeah um so uh, we're probably going to be discussing the the point where they became omnipresent and um irritated a lot of people and funnily Mm -hmm. enough the the people who tend to be annoyed by you two generally most are people who are usually five or five years or so older than me which is actually you mr hill although obviously yep. that's not the case uh, but that kind of makes sense i'm i was born 1985 and when you two were everywhere and you wouldn't have been able to escape them i would have been so young i'm not sure if it would have been on my radar enough to annoy me but if i had been five years older then it probably would have do you understand do you see what i'm saying I do. Yeah, I understand. I also think there's um, another age group and it is kind of more your age group that okay. uh, that may feel a certain type of frustration towards you too. I mean, I actually tweeted about them recently and our friend Tom Dare, who used to work for Metal Hammer and Terrorizer, yeah. uh, he's a great guy, said, oh, well, you too, why are you doing that? And I was like, come on, mate, the early stuff's incredible, which I'll get onto in a minute. And he was like, yeah, but you know, I missed all of that. And I was only old enough to remember, you know, like when they were doing the sweetest thing. And I was like, well, mm. I suppose if you're under a certain age, if you're basically kind of 35 or below, then you might only have been exposed to you two when they were doing that kind of stuff. They're already massive. They're already kind of had got all of their... Um, most creative flights of fancy out of the way. You probably looked at them as a bit bland, a bit po-faced. And, you know, funnily enough, the band themselves seem to understand that as well, which we're definitely going to be talking about. But here for me is where this sort of thing gets a little bit cloudier. Um, Because you two have made some absolutely fucking incredible records. I mean, certainly for the first 20 years of their career. I think they were amazing. And they at least, even if you don't like it, they changed and they morphed and they evolved and they experimented and they went into areas that no one else could have really seen coming at that time. And there's a thing that people say about bands like, I don't know, from more from our sort of neck of the woods, like Five Finger Death Punch and Nickelback. Um, Whenever you stick up for those bands, you see people sticking up for those bands, it's usually like, well, if it was that easy to rip them off, then loads and loads of those other bands would be massive clearly they do it better than everyone else well lots of bands have tried to rip off u2 and lots of bands are really really fucking massive off the back of ripping off u2 killers kings of leon coldplay being the kind of biggest ones all of those bands are arena stroke stadium sized bands but none of them not even Coldplay, none of them are as big as U2. U2 are way bigger than all of them and way better than all of them because they have perfected that style that those bands have tried to ape. 
But none of them, none of those bands have, I don't think, enough of a backstory where they have reached that creative zenith in the way that you two have. The reason why bands like, we'll talk about it, Sepultura, Fear Factory, Nine Inch Nails, KMFDM, Anthrax, those bands that have covered you too, they're not covering them to because they want to cover some bland stadium rock band. Mm. Um, you know, it's I not think ironic. People, no, no, it's not ironic. Um, you know, th- th- those other bands that I'm talking about have got into stadium rock lane and just stayed there. Mm. And you two didn't do that. Uh, you, you two have taken a lot of musical risks. I had a guy tweet me who was like his favorite band were the Foo Fighters, and he was like, "Oh, you two are like the most boring band around." And it's like coming from someone whose favorite band are the Foo Fighters. <laughs> I don't think you understand how kind of ironic that is. Um, I mean, like I say, this band's been covered by, amongst others, Jack White, Sepultura, Mary J. Blige, Depeche Mode, Cher, Fear Factory, Pet Shop Boys, The Killers, Anthrax, Patti Smith, and Nine Inch Nails. Mm. hence why they're about to get six hours of our attention mm, mm. yeah absolutely um, the the, yeah. Bre- the breadth of covers i before we did this i was completely unaware of the breadth of covers and you sent me a really lo- quite a long list um many of those artists you just mentioned weren't even on the list you sent me so that just goes to show just how many people uh have covered you two and the breadth of artists that have covered you two as well is pretty astonishing Mm. um uh, i'm sure we'll go into covers later but yeah some really fascinating stuff there Mm. so i'm going to ask you to leave your preconceived ideas at the door about what you think you two are and um really really try and understand why i love them i think you like them quite a lot don't you renfrey i like them a lot yes yeah yeah and i love them um and you know we're like you we like the same sort of music as you so let's talk about yeah so let's talk about you too um the joshua tree and there's a few things obviously we need to talk about before we get into the joshua tree itself the first is the ground i think that you two had already made up to at this point so they were becoming a pretty decent sized arena rock band around the world i think the idea that you two were became superstars off the back of the joshua tree is probably not a great uh it's probably not really true i mean to make the comparison when people say that the black album took metallica to stadiums worldwide they're right but they are kind of slightly ignoring the fact that the band were already an arena band on Unjustice for all you know the fact is you two were already a pretty big deal um their third album war which is fucking amazing in 1983 hit number one on the uk album chart it peaked at a quite respectable number 12 on the billboard top 200 mm-hmm. um ditto the unforgettable fire which also um you know topped the charts here in the uk i think in in 1984 i think the unforgettable fire might just be the band's most underrated work i don't know how you feel about that record renfrey it's actually the only other u2 album i own on uh, on cd um hmm. I, I yeah I own the Joshua Tree acting baby and uh, Unforgettable Fire and something we'll pro- possibly get into later uh, my first U2 CD the best of 1980 to 1990 my introduction ah uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so uh, yes I think the Unforgettable Fire is fantastic brilliant record yeah. it's got a bad on it which may well be their best song 
yeah, it's got pride in the name of love it's on it, which yeah, might be their yeah. kind of most definitive song. Yes. Um, yes. And I mean, on the, also just to kind of give another a bit of idea of how big they were at that time, on the back of the War um, album, the band recorded a record live under a blood red sky, which Sepultura nicked about a decade later um, for under a pale grey sky, uh, in front of about ten thousand people at the Red Rocks Amphitheater in Colorado, which I would have loved to have been at. I say I would have loved to have been at. I've watched it before. It's a great concert, but it is raining. So so maybe I wouldn't have liked to have been at it as much as I potentially think um, I would have done. There's Um, definitely no shelter at Red Rocks. It's um, definitely not pretty much a sort of open canyon. Absolutely beautiful venue. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, you've probably like like most metal fans who are listening to this have probably watched the Gojira. Incubus. Yeah. Incubus at Red Rocks. Yeah. 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 Incubus at Red Rocks. (laughs) uh perfect circle did a red rock show there which is yeah. amazing mm-hmm. as well um mm-hmm. yeah i mean gojira recently as we record gojira very recently been streaming their red rock show that they did right. uh, which is fucking incredible i have to say um the kind of funny thing for such a what was becoming a big band the unforgettable fight only had two singles released from it so right. pretty... and the title track right mm. yeah which is kind of crazy right for such a a big band. It isn't. It isn't a big band. It isn't. It isn't. That um, album's quite difficult to choose singles from in a way. Bar Pride yeah, and, and uh, Unforgettable Fire. Um, one of the criticisms. I know we'll go into this, but um, one of the things they wanted to do was refine the ideas from Unforgettable Fire and turn them into songs. Um, mm. So uh, it, it does make sense. But yes, at the same time, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, both of those songs that you said were top 10 hits in the UK. The title track reached number six. Uh, and Pride in the number, Name of Love reached number three in the UK. Uh, it was number one in New Zealand, number two in Ireland. Unforgettably, um, Unforgettable Fire actually reached number one in Ireland. So it was bigger than Pride, which is quite weird. Um, and it was their first song, Pride, to chart in the US top, thing, top 50 singles chart, reaching number 33. Now... Bear in mind that we're about to speak about an album that spawned two US number one singles. Mm. Uh, that is some fucking leap. Mm. Yeah. Um, and trying to find out how that happened in that country so quickly, I think, is part of the key to sort of unlocking the success of the Joshua Tree and for them to kind of unleash the success of Joshua Tree. Um, uh, very, very briefly, as an aside, I think it was definitely... Uh, you know that kind of concerted effort Th- there is obviously a concerted effort to break america with the joshua tree i think i mean certainly thematically it's about america and it's about their love-hate relationship with america do you think that's fair to say yeah yeah there's there's an interview actually there's i've got a quote here from bono when they toured the album in full on its 30th anniversary in 2017 they did a really good um beats one interview with zane lowe and um, Bono said this about their kind of their approach to the record and their approach to America at that time. He said, the Irish see America as some sort of mystical promised land, the real America. And we're open to this idea of America as more than a country, but as an idea. Ireland is a great country, but it's not an idea. So we decided to try and explore America as an idea, the mythic idea of America and the declaration is the liner notes of that idea. I'd follow America into the bathroom and quote the liner notes to it and say, what's happened to you? You're not living up to who you are. Because we love and respect the idea of America, we got away with being such a pain in the ass to it. The America idea is a beautiful idea. That's why we all want it to work so much. 
Hmm. What do you think about that? It makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I I have things to say, but I I feel like I'll be spoiling things later on uh, in terms mm. of uh, you know what the album was going to be called and stuff like that. I imagine you mm. might go into that later, so I don't want to spunk that too much. But yes, that that that, that absolutely makes sense based mm. on those things, which we'll go into, I'm sure. Because when you listen to the kind of jam and Susie Nabanchi's inspired early work that the band had did had done and then it obviously becoming as you rightly mentioned on the unforgettable fire a bit more expansive a bit more um bit more post-rock thank you a bit, bit more post-rock yeah <laughs> a bit more kind of experimental but kind of definitely very european sounding absolutely still um uh, in one of the many documentaries I've watched in uh, the build-up to this Bono himself admitted that the band never really had much of an American bent they didn't really listened to or were influenced by american music at all they're influenced by joy division punk rock and the rolling stones is what he said and you know those are stark cold records you know and they borrow far more from like i say joy division susan the banshees they you know they're a post post punk band essentially that's, that's the key isn't it stark yeah, cold compared to warm expansive landscapes isn't it mm, that's the key mm. difference right there i think yeah um much of the sort of seeds for the joshua tree were actually sown uh when bono went to work on in sun city uh on the anti-apartheid album that steve van zandt was putting together um and it's there where he finds the kind of love of blues music music that he had kind of admitted that he never exposed himself to before and he began to feel that the band had no tradition in their sound mm. and was determined to explore the past of rock music mm. kind of beyond the music that he grew up listening to and was, and was current at the time when the band were growing up. Um, obviously we come back to that later. Um, but I think that's when people kind of criticize the Joshua tree for this or you two around this time for kind of bandwagon hopping on blues music I think what people need to remember is that blues music was not a big deal in the mid eighties. No. Blues and kind of country and that type of thing was not, this is, you can't, if you're hopping on a bandwagon to make yourself popular, you probably try and jump on new romantic or glam rock or something. Do you know what I mean? Like those were the things that were big at that time. It doesn't make sense to pick something that nobody cares about and go, oh, we should do that because that will sell loads of records. It just doesn't make sense. I don't think there's anything that sounds zeitgeisty about the Joshua Tree at all. I think if you look at 1987, it was 87 that it was released. Wasn't it is, it? yeah. We'll talk about what came out that year in a bit. Yeah, I don't think there's anything zeitgeisty about it. As a guitar player, just very quickly as a brief aside, <clears throat> there was something that Edge, the Edge said, which I thought was really interesting about how notes are expensive. And he didn't want to use too many of them. And he sort of viewed them as, you know, you have a budget effectively and you want to keep within your budget, which is a really interesting way to play guitar, um, an unusual way to play guitar. Most guitarists just want to play as many notes as they possibly can and fret wank mm. over it as much, you know, I'll include myself in that. Um, <laughs> but um, that wasn't um, the Edge's approach. And certainly in 1987, that was a very uncommon approach. Um, to use effects to expand the sound rather than um, playing a million notes a second. Yeah, in that kind of 
post Van Halen rock world. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, where things are about excess and bigness and swelling everything up to the size of, you know, the shoulder pads and the, you know, the red braces and the whole kind of excessive 80s dream. The yeah. Joshua Tree is absolutely not that. Um, but it definitely does feel like uh, America from a bygone era, which we'll get into. I think obviously that helped the size of the band um, in America post this record and help for its success. I think there's another thing that is absolutely key and fundamental to the the kind of the success of the band going into the Joshua Tree. And that happened on the 13th of June, 1985. Live Aid at Wembley Stadium in London and John F. Kennedy Stadium in Philadelphia. Of course, you know what Live Aid is. We don't need to go quite far, you know, too far into Live Aid, really, do we, Renfrew? Live Aid was Bob Geldof's big feed the world, you know, benefit show for um, for Ethiopia. And uh, it, it was fairly hit and miss. Did you have, I mean, you were born that year were you even alive you were just i was i, just I think i'd just been you? born yeah it was on the 6th of january 1985 uh it was the summer of 85 i'm guessing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i mean i've never seen live aid in full if i'm totally okay. honest i think over the years due to things like this i've probably seen the majority of it <clears throat> in clips you asked me to watch the live aid footage uh for this uh which was vaguely familiar i'd probably seen it in sort of clip shows and stuff like that i don't think i'd ever sat down and watched you two set before yeah but you know i'd not seen the stuff it, you wanted to me to see it's a slog watching live aid all the way through i'm not gonna i lie. bet i bet it is yeah because as much as you go what wasn't weren't queen great and remember when status quo opened it up and it was loads of fun um what you don't talk about so much is you know, Sade boring the pants off of everyone and, you know, dire straits noodling along and the terrible sound for pretty much everyone in Philadelphia. Paul McCartney's mic cutting out and Adamant playing one song, his brand new single. And do you know what I mean? Like there's so many bits you go, this is rubbish. This is just rubbish. Um, but of course, Queen were the best, weren't they? They stole the show, didn't they? Hmm? Maybe. Well, maybe. I mean, look. There's no getting away from it, right? Queen did the hits, right? The best. Uh, They got the crowd amped up the most. They were certainly, they gave the most star-studded set list and they had the phenomenal and incredible, incomparable Freddie Mercury with his voice, his charisma and the kind of the the famous, all that to dominate the show. And everyone always talks about Queen. Now, great Queen were, Queen were great, but maybe, just maybe for people who, really love the live in live music right for people who want something a bit rawer a bit newer a bit more dangerous a bit more spontaneous are you two not actually better than queen live aid well spontaneous is the key word there Mm. isn't it uh i don't know i wasn't watching it thinking that Uh, um I mean, you're comparing two songs to four, five. How many is Queen? Five, five. Yeah. Uh, two great songs, great picks uh, in "Bad" and "Sunday Bloody Sunday." 
I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to be drawn on this. I think. I think. Okay. Well, uh, let, yeah, I'm not sure. Let me let me try and convince you. Now there is an article in Rolling Stone from 2014 called "You Two Break Bad: Twelve Minutes at Live Aid That Made the Band's Career," um, which kind of details minute by minute, second by second, mm. their performance of Bad and why it's such an integral thing that happened to them. Um, they nearly didn't play live aid you two they are control freaks as we'll probably get onto as the um as this this podcast continues you'll learn how much they are control freaks and because of and due to their control freak like nature the night before the show they contacted a kind of frazzled and emotional bob Keldoff who was on the verge of having a nervous breakdown trying to put this show together and they demanded a sound check um or they weren't going to play Bob, Bob Geldof said, fuck them and hung up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so 12 hours before they're due on stage, they've just been told to fuck off. So they sort of relented basically and went, all right, fuck it, we'll play because he's not going to back down. So they did They they did decide to play. And um, that piece in Rolling Stone is a really kind of fascinating insight of, of what happened um, to them that day, just as a kind of very quick overview view basically they were very they thought they'd blown their chance and they were pretty depressed by what happened on that day um now uh what happens essentially is they play sunday bloody sunday fine their second song is bad and their second and only other song they played is bad um as in the the title of the song is bad the title of the song is bad yeah and that, that wasn't start- a, that wasn't a critique no, no, no. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> it's fucking uh, brilliant. And yeah. is what it should be called. <laughs> um, uh, so anyway, um, after sort of, I think it's like the, the second chorus, they get past the second chorus of the song and Bono decides that he wants to get down into the photo pit. And he starts kind of trying to get people to, to jump up on stage. So he gets off the stage and there's about three levels from the stage mm. into the sort of tv camera area into yeah. the photo pit yeah. onto the floor of wembley stadium the, the um, crowd are fucking miles away basically <laughs> the crowd are miles away yeah. so um there's a, there's a documentary about live aid and bono says in that documentary i don't like the distance between stage and crowd um i don't like the distance between performer and audience so i'm looking for a symbol of the day something i can come i can hold on to so he basically jumps down um is positioned on the sort of second level of the stage and is ushering the security to pull people over the barrier and to help them up onto the stage, Mm. right? So he's doing this while the band is still playing. On they go, on they go, on they go. Um, And he said years later, Bono, that he actually was seeing that crowd having been stood there for a long time. Like they had been there for hours and hours and hours. I mean, at this point, Philadelphia had come in. In fact, one of the big things, as a sort of for a spoiler later on, is you two. Brian Adams was the first act in Philadelphia, and Brian, when Brian Adams finished, he handed back over to Wembley, where you two started. So, for the American audience that were just waking up, the first UK band or the first band they saw at Wembley was this performance by you two, mm. which I think is a pretty sort of seismic thing to have happened for them and you know there's a bit of luck in there um totally so 
years later, he said he was looking up at the crowd. He believed they were getting kind of crushed and dehydrated after sort of six hours on the blazing sun. And he wanted to make um, sure that everyone was all right. It wasn't really this kind of grand gesture of getting all these people up on stage. It was actually that he just was a bit worried about the people that were kind of dehydrated and, um, you know, were being pulled out. And you can see him kind of ushering these people up to be thrown up by the security on stage with him. And the security don't do that. Mm. they just kind of lead them off so eventually he gets kind of frustrated and jumps down onto the floor of Wembley Stadium he is now completely out of the view of the rest of his band so the other three members of U2 just continue to play the refrain of the song on a loop yeah um and I've got to say like fair play to Adam Clayton (laughs) <laughs> who we will talk about a lot in this thing for doing slightly different variations on his bass run just to keep it interesting yeah um throughout the whole thing uh adam it, clayton is brilliant so I will, I will say i mean this is an almost 12 minute version of bad and i think despite it for half of that time just looping and looping and looping even just listening to it as audio it would still probably be fucking great i would it imagine is like, i mean i i have done that and it is yeah, yeah. yeah. um so uh bono decides to jump down out of the view of the band most of the crowd but not the television cameras um larry mullen later years later said to bono i don't think you realize that once you climb down it was like a two mile walk to get to the punters um (laughs) bono gestures to another uh, girl in the crowd and the security pulls her out there's seventy-two thousand people there in wembley stadium i mean if he's pulling people out one by one it's going to take him like a month and a half (laughs) to get everybody out do you know what i mean but um there was uh, there's an interview with the girl he put, pulled out. She was 15 years old at the time. She's called Cal Kalik. And she was not in the front row because she wanted to see Bono. She says, my sister and I were desperate to see Wham. <laughs> <laughs> so we made it down to the front of the stage. So um, because George Michael and Andy originally came on with Elton John a few hours later. So Bono's actually pulled somebody out who is not really interested in Sunday Bloody Sunday at all. And more interested in like, <laughs> you know, Club Tropicana drinks are free. <laughs> Regardless. Um, I, I'm assuming uh, she had to go to the back of the crowd then as well. Yeah, I know. What a fucker for her. <laughs> yeah. Got it. So, but she's she said like, you know, I was getting crushed to fuck at the front. Yeah. Um, so he pulls her out, wraps her arms around her. They kind of do this little slow dance. Um, and she looks happy enough, I think. And yeah. it's taken a lot of effort from Bono, but he's got that kind of iconic moment that he was sort of been looking for you know breaking down the barrier between the fans and the fan um and bono has said in a very bono thing to say i didn't know that when i was holding on to her i'd been ho- i'd be holding on to the rest of the world that's why people hate you too um <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately i mean you know there's no going over it that is a cheesy thing to say it's a um, little, little bit early in the morning for that <laughs> Yeah, that whole encounter, that whole encounter with the girl is about 20 seconds of this 12 minute long period, right? Sticks so she you, walks, really she sticks walks off. You. Yeah. And then Bono goes off through the muds and the sort of crap and all the security mm. and everything. Um, that is two minutes where the band have not seen their front man mm. at all and do not know where he is. So um, Adam Clayton has said, uh, he was like, how long can we do this for? In their head, they were like looking at each other, going, how long can we do this for? It how long, obscure. how long can we sing this song? That's probably yeah. why he was thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very good, Renfrey. Very good. 
Excuse me. Um, he said, uh, it was kind of excruciating. We didn't know whether we should stop. We didn't know where he was. We didn't know if he was falling. Um, the Edge has remembered it by saying, Bono's dive into the crowd went a bit wrong because he had so much stuff to climb over to the front row. It was a massive stadium show with multiple barriers and camera tracks and a level between the stage and the floor and he must have been about 20 feet. We lost sight of him completely. He was gone for so long, I started to think that maybe he decided to end the set early and he was on his way to the dressing room. I was totally <laughs> thrown. I'm looking at Adam and Larry to see if they know what's going on and they're looking back at me with complete panic across their faces. I'm just glad the cameras didn't show the rest of the band during the whole drama because we must have looked like the Three Stooges. Right. Um, Larry Mullen has said he was three bars away from just en- going da, 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 and ending the song. Mm. And just as he saw those three, those three bars, he looked at the front of the stage and Bono's head popped up <laughs> from above <laughs> the sort of thing into the sort of photographer's um, uh, apron again. And um, Bono later admitted, I'd gone AWOL to try and find a television moment and I'd completely forgotten that we were playing the song. So at this point, the rest of the band go, oh, there he is. We're sort of about to end the song. Um, they look over at the, at the clock and realise that they don't have time to play Pride in the Name of Love, which is what uh, they were going to end with. Okay. Right. So they're now like, well, we've got three minutes, but we don't have the time that we need to play the big hit. So they just sort of fill it out with um, the remaining time with snippets of Satellite by Love and Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed, Ruby Tuesday and Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones. And they do this kind of, you know, crowd participation bit. And then Bono goes, see you later, throws the mic down and leaves them to kind of just conclude the song without him. Um, And everyone goes, Oh, that was you too. That was interesting. That was spontaneous and exciting and blah, blah, blah. The band did not think that. The band mm. did not think that at all. They had a massive argument backstage. Um, Larry Muller Jr., Adam Clayton and The Edge were fucking livid with Bono. And there was a, a real chat that they were going to kick him out of the band. They mm. honestly were like, you fucking idiot. We've had the... the, the he, they were like, you've hung us out to dry. You've made us look like idiots. We didn't get to play our biggest hit. Um, the consensus was that it had been clumsy. And Larry Mullen said, we felt like we'd blown an opportunity to be great. Um, Bono said it was a great day, but I thought I'd fucked it up. Um, far from being a blown opportunity, though, it was actually a kind of career making moment. All of their albums went back into the UK charts the next week. Uh, in the US they had this massive surge in popularity and the band had to kind of begrudgingly admit that Bono's instinct as a performer um, had kind of made them stand out from the more sensible and conservative pop stars that they were surrounded with all it did is make them stand out as a proper live band you know they apps they just riffed it and you know they 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 turned it into a sort of you know as as cheesy as that i was holding on to the whole world thing is mm. those moments those moments of spontaneity are far more interesting than a band coming through with their well-oiled we talk about this a lot don't we you know what do you want to see from your live acts do you want to see this kind of drilled oiled precision like machine or do you want to f- go and see a band and feel like 
who fucking knows what's going to happen? And what you two did that day is no different to what a band like the Dillinger Escape Plan or At The Driving would have done that day. I was going to say, it's pretty punk as fuck to Mm. um, just feel like you can, you know, throw the script out and and a show that big. Um, That's a pretty punk thing to do. Um, The effect that you're describing there is what I like to call the Pearl Jam effect. Uh, Having Mm -hmm. a spontaneous kind of approach to live shows rather than drilling in this, the same set list, the same between song banter and it getting boring for, certainly for the band, um, maybe six dates into a mammoth hundred date tour, say, you know. Mm. So, yeah, absolutely. I concur with all of that 100%. Yeah. Uh, the Edge said it really took us by surprise when people started talking about you 2 as one of the noteworthy performances of the day. I thought they were joking. I thought we were crap. But looking back at it, as I did a week later, I started to see it for what it was. There was a real sense of real total jeopardy, which is always very exciting for a live event. And Bono's complete determination to make physical contact with the crowd and eventually getting there after two minutes of struggling over barriers. I think there was something about the effort that he had to put in to do all that that somehow made it even more powerful. Um, Bono summed up U2's set years later by saying, crap sound, crap haircuts. We didn't end up playing the hit because the singer fucked off into the crowd. The band wanted to fire me as a result and it turned out to be one of the best days of our lives explain that ask god he probably knows um i've got to be honest with you i've got to be honest with you renfrey if you said to me you can watch one song in that from any band ever at any point from the history of recorded music or live music i would watch you two doing bad at live aid I've watched it more than I've watched. I think the video of that song, I have watched more than any other live song ever in my entire life. I think it is incredible. I think it's like you rightly said, it's one of, if not their best song ever. Um, And there's just, even when you listen back to like, you know, there's, we'll, we'll talk about this sort of extended Joshua tree remaster that sort of 20 year anniversary deluxe edition a little bit later there's a live from paris um album live like a live out of set from paris and they do bad on that they do bad in rattle and hum and it's always great but there's always. something particularly amazing and far more um loose and experimental and spontaneous about that version of bad from wembley at wembley stadium at live aid that day i think it is the single best bit of Live Aid and I think I will I will go <laughs> on record as saying that it's better than Queen. Do you know what I will concede? Um I'm not sure if I would go as far as to say that U two set is better than Queen's set, but in terms of single best song, Bad could absolutely get it, I think. Yeah. Mm. It's fucking brilliant. It's it's amazing. It's really, really, really amazing. And um yeah, I mean, seeing that when I was, however old I was, I mean, I think I would have already been into U2 by the time I actually got to see that footage, but it just sort of strengthened everything about why I thought they were a fucking great band. And I always wondered for years why they didn't. I was like, when, why didn't they play Pride in the Name of Love? Yeah. Why? It yeah. seems mad to me. It's your biggest hit and you didn't play it at Live Aid. That's why. That's why. Yeah. It encapsulates, it's a moment in time which encapsulates 
the thing that kind of made the band the sort of po-faced seriousness that made the band but also the thing that critics later in their career used to you know hit them with i guess um people certainly i think it began a little bit on the joshua tree but critics started to kind of go against them certainly after joshua tree and acting baby and stuff and um and it was always the po-faced seriousness that they would often bring up Mm. um yeah i mean possibly their greatest strength and their biggest weakness as well debatably Mm. Mm. yeah 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 and how they've dealt with that obviously is pretty much i think the sort of centerpiece of what both of these podcasts are um, dealing with really is how you kind of um how you balance how you make that balancing act and there's no doubt about it looking for something <laughs> that level of important oh, we're so important that we need to be the band that connects the music to the world by holding on to this person who represents planet earth like it's a bit arrogant oh just a tad yeah but it makes for um it makes for sort of it makes for high drama and you can't deny that it's real i mean that's the one thing about that is you can't deny that wasn't a a, a genuinely spontaneous moment in in what that band were doing well it would have been far better choreographed if it hadn't yeah exactly it would have happened you know far quicker and the fact that it kind of fucks up in a weird way is actually part of its magic Mm. yeah it really is so i think that is a huge part of the thing that made people go hmm you too eh that's interesting um We'll talk about them going off on tour and stuff, but I guess obviously with it, the album coming out in 1987, we should probably contextualize 1987 at this point. Um, as we've already sort of mentioned, um, the height of the kind of MTV glam thing, 1987. Um, Appetite for Destruction came out in 1987. Absolutely massive album, obviously. Took a while to get uh, massive, we should probably say. Took a while. Took but a while, you know. Undoubtedly yeah, it was, yeah. You know, it's ended up kind of being <clears throat> I guess one of one of definitely one of the definitive album, and no doubt one of maybe the definitive album of nineteen eighty seven, potentially. Uh, although it's got some pretty fucking stiff competition. Living on a prayer went into number one on both sides of the Atlantic that year as well. In Britain, indie Slippery when wet, do you mean? Uh I know Living on a Prayer, uh the single, the single. Okay. um went in at number one, which is kind of um obviously massive i'm sure slippery room where <laughs> went in at number one in the album charts where i came out that year yeah. um in in fact i think slippery room wet came out in 1986 you but living in right. the prayer went in, in in the charts at number one uh in britain obviously we had indie music being very underground we had goth music that kind of electro scene was yielding pretty great results um that year we had uh kiss me kiss me kiss me by the cure music for the masses by depeche mode which renfrey and i have spoken about on a previous show actually by the pet shop boys came out that year strange ways here we come by the smiths was released that year as well so those are all quite quintessentially british sounding things in america um document by rem came out sister by sonic youth came out that year uh songs about fucking by big black came out that year as well so there is a really cool healthy underground guitar scene that goes alongside this mtv glam thing although you wouldn't argue that any of those song that any of those albums were commercially comparable to the mega albums that were coming out 
because there were some mega albums that came out that year um and they're more sort of comparable to where the joshua tree sits in terms of the size of the records bad by michael jackson sign of the times by prince hysteria by def leopard kick by in excess tango in the night by fleetwood mac faith by george michael whitney by whitney houston permanent vacation by aerosmith and white snakes self-titled album all came out that year all of those albums and i think we sort of said it uh, when we spoke about uh, use your illusion too back when the record industry could sell you 10 12 albums every year that would sell 50 60 million billion records you know this was this was the time that that shit was happening on a grand huge scale we refer to it as blockbuster records i believe on the I, we did yeah well. and obviously we will talk about 1981 again probably not in the same level of depth as we did in that guns and roses special but we Nin- will talk about 1991 again 1991 yeah you said 81 yeah, 1991. <laughs> did i 81 mm-hmm. yeah yeah idiot um but yeah mate i mean just look at the size of that you mean those are massive records undoubtedly like and you just cannot imagine a world where that many records of that size come out in one year now you just can't imagine it oh god uh, it's difficult to imagine a world where one of those records that sold as well yeah. as that i mean well it's not difficult it's impossible to imagine a world where you know we are talking i mean you know don't want to spunk it probably will do but joshua tree is one of the best-selling albums of all time so mm-hmm. you know, yeah so uh yeah huge huge records uh at the time and those records don't really have a lot in common um other than the fact that they all sound shiny faith by george michael (laughs) shiny bad shiny sign of the times shiny hysteria shiny shiny yeah shiny white snake by white snake shiny like whitney by whitney houston Uh, that was the thing To, to it felt like to be big you had to have a super shiny polished lovely mutlang uh records do you know what i mean i think appetite is a uh uh outlier in that I, but but for I the most joshua part. trees i think joshua trees an outlier as well mm-hmm. but um yeah yeah, yeah. But obviously we'll get into that but yeah you're you know i think appetite for destruction is a corner turned yeah as most people say certainly in the rock scene and i'm not sure maybe i'm not sure joshua tree in terms of pop um is so much but anyway um but that was the world in which the joshua tree was sort of birthed into um so in terms of the kind of writing and the intention of the record uh the edges said we had experimented a lot in the making of the unforgettable fire we'd done quite a revolutionary thing so we felt like going to the joshua tree that maybe options were not a good thing that limitations might be positive kind of like what you're saying before and so we decided to work within the limitations of the song as a starting point we thought let's actually write songs we wanted the record to be less vague less open-ended less atmospheric and less impressionistic to make it more straightforward focused and concise um and the, the joshua tree is very definitely that i think um you know bono pushed more towards american sounds in the writing process because he had a newfound love of these artists that he had found you know from his friendships with bob dylan and van morrison and keith richards who all played him blues and howling wolf and you know old american kind of folk music woody guthrie and stuff like that and um and that was just what they were listening to 
Um, the songs feel like their own islands a bit mm. more so than the certainly the unforgettable fire um i'm sure we'll go into this later but they they kind of had issues sequencing the record and i and i think listening to it it is quite a difficult record to sequence i think they got it right as much as they could have but something that mm. something i struggled with with uh, Joshua Tree for a short while is in terms of the flow of the record, it's not the best flowing album in the world, I don't think. I think certainly compared to Acting Baby, it doesn't flow in the same way. No, um, I think it, you think you're right there, actually. Yeah. But uh, it's something that I've I've grown to love the way that it flows now. But it but it is it's a tricky record to get all flowing and stuff. And I think, I mean, it's interesting. There were essentially two records that they were trying to compile together. Again, I'm sure we'll get into that. Mm. Um and you can quite, it's quite easy to figure out which songs are from the sort of blues one and which one, which were from the, the what was the other one that was, that was primary? Kind of Europe, more European. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Style thing. I mean, well, this is the thing is I think the creative push and pull and the, mm, the unwillingness by certain members of the band at certain times to risk things as much as other members of the band is... I think is is where you get that bit of friction in the band a lot. Yeah. I think you know. I mean, yeah. the Edge, for example, was initially far less convinced that the band should be doing what they started by making things easier. You know, because essentially, what it sounds like when you say, "Oh, you know, we wanted to write songs and make it more concise," you're saying, "Let's make it more digestible. Let's make it easier." And yeah. I'm not necessarily convinced that the Joshua Tree is that, although. Its sales would suggest otherwise. Um, no, I know what you mean, though. Yeah, I know what you mean. It, 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 it I mean, it's hardly, it's not a sugar record, but it doesn't feel, it, compared to like classic records, it doesn't feel easily digestible, I don't think. It does take a little while. Mm, mm. And The Edge actually did want to continue to explore the more kind of open and experimental sound that they did on the, the unforgettable fire. He felt that they could get that sound right. And it was only when they toured the U S and Bono would put on U S radio uh, on the unforgettable fire tour and Robert Johnson, Hank Williams and Howlin' Wolf would come on and the edge hearing those artists and sort of appreciating those artists for the first time was sort of what brought him round to go in yeah, maybe we should potentially try and sort of mine this this idea that he's got. Um, but I don't think it's as simple as, I mean, we'll talk about Rattle and Hum in a little bit. And Rattle and Hum very much is like a bunch of straightforward rock and roll songs that are reminiscent of a certain era in American music. Definitely. I'm not entirely convinced that the Joshua Tree is that though it does continually get painted as that i think the songs on the joshua tree and and the new songs on rattle and hum are night and day practically mm. even though they kind <laughs> of come from the same influences and the same period of music in a sense yeah. I, I think they are very very different yeah really I, yeah different. i absolutely agree i think um, if desire was in the middle of joshua tree it would stick out like a sore thumb 
Desire's a great yeah. song, but I think... Or Angel of Harlem. Angel of Harlem. Just wouldn't work. No, absolutely not. Angel of mm. Harlem into Win God's Country. <laughs> it just wouldn't work at all. No, absolutely not. Um, so the band decided to use Brian Eno, Brian, Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois again, both of whom had worked on The Unforgettable Fire. They also added the engineer Mark Ellis, or Flood, as you mm. would probably know him as, after being impressed with his work with Nick Cave, Rimfrey. Mm. Yep. Mm. Unsurprising. So Flood... Yeah. Um, the producers encouraged the band to go out and search out older music that they thought would increase their musical vocabulary uh, alongside more contemporary bands such as My Bloody Valentine and The Smiths. Um, initially, the band decided to begin recording at the Danes Moat House in Ireland, which is a two-story Georgian mansion that Adam Clayton actually later bought yeah. and lived in, which is quite nice, which uh, they thought had a similar vibe to Slane Castle, which is where they recorded The Unforgettable Fire. Uh, they actually found the property, funnily enough, while the Edge was house hunting with his wife, although they didn't buy the house, he remembered it, um, and uh, they asked if they could rent it for recording. So the Edge wanted to buy it, they recorded it, Adam Clayton bought it anyway. <laughs> oh, to be a, oh, to be a rock star, Renfrew. <laughs> um, that is kind yeah. of sweet in a way, just that idea of buying... Uh, the property where you recorded your biggest selling album of all time. Mm. I I think yeah. that's awesome. Like that's really yeah. cool. I mean, would th would that I had enough money to buy your old flat in Greenwich where we recorded all those classic episodes of Riot Act. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I'd like to go back. Um, <laughs> the dining room got converted into a control room with a, a tape machine and a mixing desk. They put the uh, massive double doors in the bin, took, got rid of them and replaced them with a grass sc glass screen that looked into the kind of elegant drawing room area. Um, and that was a sort of live room where they, they recorded everything. Uh, the hardwood floors and double ceiling, the space kind of had these oversized acoustics. Um, Adam Clayton has said, when you hear that big drum sound in the Joshua Tree, that's the sound of that room in particular. Yeah. which played a, a kind of a really important integral part in getting, you know, that sound right um well, reading about this it sounded it had echoes of um radiohead recording okay computer in jane seymour's yes. mansion i thought yeah, yeah. there's a lot yeah. of houses that there's a lot of great records that get recorded in houses and you yeah. can kind of hear it i think you can hear the the nihilistic nastiness of the the sharon tate house in the downward spiral for example Absolutely. although We'll um, save that for our Nine Inch Nails special whenever that comes up, which will yep. be one day. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's that um, famous, uh, well, it, uh, my second mention for Incubus, the Morning View house, the the one. God. <laughs> Let it go. <laughs> but uh, like, well, Chili Peppers did Blood Sugar Sex Magic there as well. I yep. think, um, I mean, that, that, there's something about that studio slash house, which gives the records that are recorded there a vibe without mm. trying to sound too hippie-ish but it's mm. true it's difficult to deny uh the interesting thing i think about you two is the more i read about them the more they kind of seem to flip-flop around studios and just take what they need in a kind of magpie-like approach because yeah. the band recorded the majority of the backing tracks in that house during those sessions um but the majority of the songs and the, the most of the songs were worked on at that time but the band felt they couldn't really settle in that house um so decided to take a break from recording the album to do some benefit shows did a couple of benefit shows they did one called self-aid in dublin where they performed a cover of maggie's farm by bob 
Dylan and changed the words to specifically mention Margaret Thatcher. Lads, this is 15 years before Rage Against the Machine covered the same song, but sure, Bono's a cunt. Of course he is. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, they also did a six-day US tour called Conspiracy of Hope alongside a reformed version of The Police for three of the shows. Sting, Brian Adams, Peter Gabriel, Lou Reed, Joan Bears, and the Neville Brothers all played, which is all to benefit Amnesty International. Um, this had a very profound effect on the sound of the record as well. Um, whilst they're out touring America around that time, they saw what they referred to as the bleakness of Reagan's America, which kind of strengthened their reserve to push the themes of this record even further. Um, during that tour, they would sound use their sound check to work and perfect the new songs that they were working on. Um, so again, you know, a bit like Radiohead. We talked about the Radiohead special, a band kind of going out on the road and actually using that time and the environment to work out exactly what the new record was going to be, even though they had ostensibly kind of written and started on that record, but letting those songs evolve and grow and change and not being like, I mean, we've just today, in fact, actually, as we've as we're recording, we've just released our Lamb of God special. Lamb of God take the completely opposite approach, which is here are our songs. We're going to the studio. This is what they sound like. Don't touch them. Yeah, we record them, them, make them sound nice. It's done. Um, but bands like U2 and Radiohead have a very, very different approach to that. Yes, very much so. Not to say which one's better out of the two. Mm. <laughs> well i mean unless you want to say which one's better than two Renfrey, i certainly think it allows room for growth and more experimentation if you're going to be taking your songs out on the road and fucking with them uh mm -hmm. in the live experience in the live experience jesus i'm sounding like bono um i don't know no i don't i don't want to dictate which is better i would never say that i think it's just different approaches but i certainly think playing stuff live probably leads to a more experimental approach i think out of u2 and radiohead uh out of u2 radiohead and lamb of god u2 and radiohead are clearly the most experimental yeah Is everything slightly more slightly more successful Yes. Uh, the, Lamb of God, <laughs> the Lamb of God as well. Um, no, it, yeah, everything's fine, mate. Bonjour's done a, done a poo, as she likes to do wonderful. when we're recording our best specials. But I've just sent my girlfriend to go and clean that up. So Happy birthday to, to us. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> of course. Uh, one of the other things that was very important, and I say important, I mean, there's no doubt that it was important, but maybe not important in the way that the, the band would like to have happened. Um, on the 3rd of July, while they were kind of in sort of situ between recording and the tour, um, uh, the band heard that their roadie, Greg Carroll, was killed in a motorbike accident. So um, Greg Carroll was actually hired by Bono after he'd been summoned to escort the singer on a sightseeing tour of New Zealand. Uh, in the middle of the night in 1984, while the band were touring New Zealand, um, Bono was suffering from jet lag and was up at, you know, in the middle of the night and he couldn't do couldn't sleep and he just thought i i want to do something so uh oh to be a rock this, star yeah so greg carroll <laughs> was a guy who um who was kind of uh asked if he'd get up in the middle of the night and he'd go and just take bono on a 
sightseeing tour around the hotspots of New Zealand. Mm. Um, he met up with him and he took him to one of the highest volcanic peaks in the country. And um, Bonner said, they took me up to the top of the place called One Tree Hill, where a single tree stands at the top of the mount, like some stark Japanese painting. And we looked around at this city that's made by craters of volcanoes. I remember it so vividly, I think because it meant something to me about finding my own freedom. Um, the two men got on so well that Bonner actually offered him as a, a job with the band and they became really, really close friends. Um, when he died, Bono sang Knock on Heaven's Door and Let It Be at his funeral. And he was so kind of heartbroken and distraught by his death that... Um, the band decided that they were going to take a little holiday, a little break. And during this time, during his free time, uh, Bono and his wife visited El Salvador and Nicaragua. And seeing the kind of distress and poverty that the military action in both countries had caused on the native people of the world, he wrote Bullet the Blue Sky and Mothers Have Disappeared there about what he saw. He also wrote One Tree Hill in memory of Carol. Um, uh, musically it was kind of jammed together on a whim by the band but bono had to do the song in one take so the take you hear on that album is the only vocal take that they took of that song um he actually said uh it brought gravitas to the recording of the joshua tree we had to fill the hole in our heart with something very very large indeed we loved him so much and um the album itself is uh in completion is dedicated to carol's memory so he just was unable to do another take, which again, you know, superstar, massive, huge stadium selling band. Um, the singer does one take and they use that one take. Mm. That doesn't really strike me as, you know, uh, what's the word? This kind of clinical pop perfection. No, absolutely not. No. I mean, mm. I suppose there are points of this record where you can maybe accuse them of that but um no certainly not on a song like one tree hill absolutely mm. not or certainly i mean mothers of the disappeared but all three of those songs bullet the blue sky as well feels very raw surprisingly raw for this big stadium rock kind of act mm. um yeah 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 um so in august of 1986 the band regrouped to finish the album off after their kind of extended period away uh only this time rather than going back to uh adam clayton's soon-to-be house uh they went to the edges actual house the, the edge ended up buying in monkstown which is a sort of seaside town in southern ireland uh the band worked relentlessly during this time and at one point they suggested that due to the amount of material they believe they had they wanted to release as you quite right rightfully said renfrey a double album um one of roots inspired music and one of kind of more classic european rock uh it was actually brian eno suggested that they just take what they really believed in and release that stating that the new songs they were referring to needed so much work that they'd still be there in another three months um, and that they just had to draw the line somewhere. So 30 songs were written, 11 songs ended up on the, the final album. The work was so extensive that when it came to the end of their period together, they still weren't finished. Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois actually had other commitments and weren't able to mix the final album. Mm. So they brought in their previous producer, Steve Lillywhite, who'd worked on The Unforgettable Fire, who'd worked on War uh, and the other records, October and Boy as well, uh, who was tasked with polishing up the singles for the radio, mm. um, which hugely pissed off Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois. Mm. Um, I probably understandably so, 
I guess as well. I mean, it's unfortunate, but I guess it needed to be done. But you wouldn't want somebody else's fingerprints all over your hard work, really, would you? I yeah, to an extent. I don't know. I would have expected. Uh, I did read about this, and I would have expected Dino and Lanoy to sort of accept that if the job's not done and you're not available to finish it, you got to get someone else in to to finish it off. You can't you can't just sit around and wait. Um, you know. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I can understand why that would be irritating. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So uh, they did the mixing. Uh, it was actually completed the night before the deadline. The band had been given by Island Records to finish the album off. The the track listing was actually given to not the band themselves. You said the band did a really good job of doing the track listing. The band didn't do the track listing. No, sorry, I I did know that. Yes, I I yeah. mis- misspoke so, there. Yeah, the late um, Kirsty McCall she of um uh the fairy tale of new york with the pogues fame mm. was given the tracks and told to sequence the album as she saw fit with the only stipulation being that they started with where the streets have no name and ended with mothers have disappeared um she finished doing that at 2 a.m seven hours before the tapes were due to go to island record and at that very moment the edge walked in and asked if he could do some more backing vocals for where the streets have no name so they really weren't um <laughs> they weren't they did not want to fi- it feels to me like they just did not want to finish this record like he, that he, is b- these kind of perfectionists that they have to be he was denied though wasn't he oh yeah he was yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. they were like no <laughs> we need to because mm. of course at that time you needed to hand deliver the masters so i i don't know who it, i'm assuming it was lily white i'm guessing probably yeah. would have um uh got got on a plane they were in Dublin, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. Got on a plane to Hammersmith. I think he needed to go to to, yeah. to to physically drop off the masters. And you know, if you're working on something for that long, you're not going to entrust it to just like a courier service. No. <laughs> you know, you're going to drop it off yourself. So I wonder if he yeah. had to put it through the bag, check check the bag. Yeah, who knows? I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't trust airports to like his bloody no. U2 album ends up in Gambia something <laughs> like some golf clubs he's like oh what the fuck um, you take anyway. it on his hand luggage surely surely, surely you take yeah, the Joshua Tree to. on his hand luggage you'd have to surely. I mean we'll get a, it, it didn't get nicked or leaked or anything but considering how big they are U2 have got a bit of a history of like uh-huh. letting their albums <laughs> like leaving their music hanging around before it's been released well yeah uh, we, we will get into that in the second part won't we yeah we will um before we go into the actual kind of album itself i think obviously we need to mention the artwork as well yeah the artwork is incredibly iconic one of the most iconic covers of whatever i think um so the original title for the album was the two americas uh and the band had in mind that they wanted to um they sort of had that idea that it was going to be called the two americas when they went into death valley for three days with the photographer anton corbin in 1986 you probably know the name anton corbin um you probably know it from many bands but you those bands know it from u2 basically don't they yeah he kind of made his name with with the u2 so um i wouldn't i wouldn't wouldn't have said anton corbin was a name at this point no, um really. I, I don't think he was anyway he'd um, done a I, bit with the he'd been working for the nme he was just a sort of freelance nme right, journalist right um so the album title was meant to represent where the desert met civilization um anton corbin was actually interviewed in the classic albums documentary um 
about this record and he said we made a schedule of three days to shoot and it was during the night after the first day of shooting that i went out with bono and said to him there's a tree that i really love it's called the joshua tree it'll be brilliant to have that on the front and then the band on the back uh bono came down next morning with a bible um he looked at the joshua tree in the bible and he thought that it should probably be the title for the album then we went out that day to actually look for the tree uh, amazingly enough we found this beautiful tree stand on its own this type of tree usually grows in big groups so it's incredible to find that tree on its own i've never seen another tree on its own there since uh, they spent 20 minutes posing with the lone tree before the winter chill um sent them scuttling back onto their bus um bono said it was freezing and we had to take our coats off so it would at least look like a desert that's one of the reasons we look so grim um people uh, forget bono, don't they? people forget that the the desert has very extreme weather conditions and actually at mm. night it gets absolutely freezing yeah, cold really super cold yeah um bono said that he felt that that year for them had been a desert with the kind of death of his best friend, this massive workload and the pressure that they'd all been on, on to. Like he said, his personal life had been in turmoil as well. So he felt like the year had been a desert, which is why he wanted to sort of shoot the album cover in a desert. Yeah, Adam Clayton has a sort of more optimistic meaning about uh, behind the um, the cover. He said, The desert was immensely inspirational for, to us as a mental image for this record. Most people would take the desert on face value and think it's some kind of barren place, which of course is true. But in the right frame of mind, it's also a very positive image because you can actually do something with a blank canvas, which is effectively what the, de what the desert is. Mm. That's quite an interesting... Um, different thought process absolutely Again, yeah they don't always seem to be on the same page that much you two when it comes no. to talking about things well absolutely not and certainly you know part in part two um that's going to be the case as well isn't it but um it, yeah. I, I think that's always an interesting sort of point for art to begin if you've got kind of two people looking at the same thing but looking at it from two different perspectives a glass half empty and a glass half full um yeah. I think that often makes for interesting art. Yeah, absolutely. I, I absolutely agree. Um, the ironic thing about this um, kind of quite landmark tree that they found is due to the spontaneity of finding the tree and taking the shot and then running off because it was so cold is that they didn't actually know geographically where the tree was. Mm. So in the years of the album coming out afterwards, loads of people have been had been sort of would go out to the desert and try and find a spot in fact there's a story that apparently two people died looking for it in the desert because they couldn't wow. find it sort of Fargo, um, Fargo esque scenario yeah yeah mm. really um although it did actually die of natural causes in the year 2000 apparently it did get found in the end it was a uh, an estimated 200 years old that tree um one dedicated fan left a plaque by the decomposing trunk reading have you found what you're looking for um in 2015 uh, a, a slightly less altruistic individual defaced the tree's remains hacking it into pieces and making off with a limb from the tree what an <laughs> arsehole <laughs> fucking arseholes some people, people. Re really hate you too don't they <laughs> they really hate you too come on <laughs> what a prick um so it's, anyway, kind of, so it's, it's quite like similarly um it's a sort of interesting parallel with the um sky valley sign on on uh caius's welcome to sky valley um, it is yeah uh and i i, I made the phone box the phone box the david bowie phone box mm. in um yeah 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 on oxford street 
Well, I may I mainly make the the Caius comparison just because obviously I guess those two land album landmarks, if you will, are in the same part of the world. They're in the same they desert, are. aren't they? Uh, but the Sky Valley sign gets defaced or stolen or uh, all sorts of things like all the time. They have to replace that sign every few months, I believe. And I believe that is still the case even to wow. this day, which is bonkers. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I suppose you know where to find that sign. Sky yes, Valley. Exactly. Exactly. There's a tree in a desert. Well, there's that. Quite hard to find. A lot of people assume that the Joshua Tree is in a, a national park, don't they? But actually, the, the national park that they assume it's in is, is around 200 miles away from the actual location of the tree. Mm. That's quite a popular yeah. myth, apparently. That is a popular myth, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff around it. So um, uh, just before we get into the album itself, I think, you know, with the record there, with the artwork done, with the theme of the record and all this sort of work that they'd gone through, you'd think you two would finally be happy. But actually, just before the album was released, Bono was so worried that it wasn't good enough, he contemplated calling the processing plant to tell them to stop making the record. What an arrogant egomaniac. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, very ironic considering what it went on to do but yeah wasn't this like the night before as well or something like that it was, it was very... yeah it was quite quite close to the uh, the release of the record it yeah. was close to the wire certainly yeah yeah mm. yeah imagine that just uh, all that fucking shit and you just go ah fuck it even though it's been printed up <laughs> just pulp them like alan partridge's book it's crazy <laughs> yeah totally fucking crazy. mad absolutely mad um so the album itself renfrey Let's talk about the record. Um, oh, looking at the track listing, I mean, I don't even really know where to start. It is... Um, like, it was one of those weird things where the album came out before any of the singles came out. So we don't have to do any... This was released first, and then that came out. Like, the album came out, and then bit by bit by bit, songs were uh, released as singles. But um, I said to you the other week, that side one is one of the best side ones to any record ever. Where the streets have no name, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, with or without you, bullet the blue sky, running to stand still. That is untouchable. It's fucking great. Um, weirdly, I mean, before we started doing research on this, I probably wouldn't have agreed with you because of Bullet the Blue Sky, but I've really, really grown to like Bullet the Blue Sky, actually. So I'm not going to say that. Um, mm. I do agree with you. I don't think the best song on this record is on the first half. I, I'm interested to know what your favourite song is and then we can talk about it. Go for it. In God's country. I'm gonna, let me guess. Oh, is oh, it? Okay. It. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, that's okay. I would have. I was going to guess exit, but uh, I think know. exit's brilliant. But in God's country, yeah. in God's country is my number one, and with or without you is my very, very close number two. Okay. Um. Yes. In God's country is fucking is brilliant. fucking is fucking brilliant. Yeah. Um. Is is a a genuinely great song. It is one of the singles. Um. From but the only actually... only in North America, I believe. Yeah, only in North America. It was a sort of fourth single in North America. And that sort of makes sense because it is one of the most kind of twangly, Springsteen-y songs Absolutely. on the record. Like, yeah, definitely. A bit more up ten, but there's not really... Um, there's not a lot of kind of up-tempo 
stuff on the Joshua Tree, really, is there? Uh, it's pretty chilled. Uh, there's, there's actually not a lot of, I mean, save for the first three songs, which I think have become anthemic because they are and because of how huge they've become. It's not really a record which screams kind of, and, and you know, massive stadium size anthemic rock about it really and in god's country is one of the songs which has got i think has got one of the more instantaneous songs from the record i think funnily enough in god's country could fit in quite well with their previous records whereas mm. quite a lot of this material couldn't yes uh, yeah, which I might say which right. you know which might say something about i mean certainly we've kind of already hinted at it despite joshua tree being the biggest um, of the three U2 albums I own, I might be spoiling this slightly, but it's probably my least favourite. Really? Of, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that says quite a lot about U2 because it's a fucking great record. Um, but yeah, I mean, In God's Country is just undeniable. I think that song's incredible. It's um, I referred earlier to buying the best of 1980 to 1990 and that being my introduction to U2. When I finally picked up a copy of Joshua Tree, I was just stunned that In God's Country didn't make it onto that mm. track listing. Uh, Weather Streets have no name. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And With or Without You um, did. But, uh, of course it did, yeah. Yeah, but n- but none of the other songs. It's just those three. Yeah, I mean that's when you've got so many hits. I sure, guess you can't you can't have everything. But um, yeah, and also it's I mean Bono's actually said he he doesn't know whether the song is about Ireland or the the USA. Mm. Um, it sounds very much USA to me. I mean, actually, yeah. In terms of in terms of sort of sonic comparative points with stuff that maybe we might cover it's not a million miles away from that kind of heartland emo that you know it is different but it's not a million miles away sort of thematically or or um emotionally from that kind of menzinger e uh heartland emo stuff that we talk about and enjoy so much i'd not considered that but i'll tell you what if gas uh if gaslight anthem did a cover of in god's country i'd love to hear it for example, mm. you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'll go with that. Yeah, it is a great... I mean, this, let's. I'm, I'm definitely not downplaying the second half of the record at all. I think the first half is definitely the blockbuster, but I do think side two, when you've got stuff like Exit... Um, Trip Through Your Wise is an interesting song. That's probably the most rattle and hummy yeah. uh, song from the record. I'd say it's probably my least favourite song on the record um yeah. maybe due to it being a little bit more um yeah it, it, it's where the kind of uh, i wasn't going to say cultural appropriation until later and in a sort of joking manner but if people are going to accuse that kind of cultural appropriation thing of it being this kind of um insincere version of blues or what or country music trip through your wires is the closest one that i would go yeah it doesn't quite feel as authentic as the rest of the record but i still think it's a good song i still think it's a good song though yeah i don't think it i understand what you're saying i i wouldn't go with that argument personally and i don't think you're saying you would either but no yeah. I, I absolutely wouldn't know mm-hmm. but i'm just saying that <laughs> there's not a lot that you can kind of that accusation can't really be put <laughs> at this album's um, feet i don't think it doesn't and hold a lot of water no absolutely it doesn't um i love exit I think Exit is fucking brilliant. Exit's great. I mean, Exit is, again, has got quite a lot of um, 
it I mean it's it's dark it's quite possibly the darkest um song on the record it being about a serial killer yeah. and kind of talking about inside the mind of a serial killer yeah covered, um, covered by anthrax wasn't it? covered by anthrax we'll talk about that in a little bit um it's um it's Adam Clayton. I mean, maybe this is a good time to bring up Adam Clayton. Have you got a, you know, we, we've talked about The Edge already. Um, people don't always talk about U2's musical proficiency or how unique a a band they are in terms of each member's individual playing styles. They do talk about The Edge having that changly, changly, jangly, you know. Guitar gu- delay. Guitar delay thing. They don't really talk about anyone else. I think what's kind of interesting about you too is that Adam Clayton is almost the the lead guitarist in you too. I think he's the bedrock for a lot of these songs. Adam Clayton's mm. very underrated. Um, yeah, I think he's brilliant, and I I like the cut of his jib as well. I uh, I think you could make an an argument that either Adam Clayton is the bass player and lead guitarist of and rhythm guitarist of you too, or Larry Mullen Jr is the drummer and bassist in U2. Oh, okay. Because Larry Mullen drums in a way with so much snare and that kind of militaristic beat which he puts into so many of their songs. Sunday Bloody means Sunday that, is a good example of that. Sunday Bloody Sunday is a great example of that, yeah. Um, <coughs> but um, but he does... I mean, all the, the, to move forward even beyond that, the fly, if you listen to the... Mm-hmm. If you listen to his drums on the fly, which obviously are kind of, there's electronic drums in there as well, which we'll talk about a lot in the second half. Um, but Larry Mullen Jr. provides a backbeat and also a, a kind of a rhythmical forward motion, mm. which means Adam Clayton can, every time you think of a U2 riff, especially from this era, while the Edge was doing the kind of colour, Ed, the Edge is almost like a colourist. Yeah, for the songs. Well, He's... Tom Tom Morello used to say that he that Tom that he Tom Morello was a the, the, the band's DJ. DJ. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't think that's a solid comparison point for the Edge, but there is something to that. He provides kind of um, uh, Frank Delgado esque. Yeah, he provides mm. textures and uh, riffs that aren't always riffs that you can kind of sing along to but it just gives this beautiful sort of texture to the record um mm. especially in his use of delay effects i mean something which i think is keen is, is important to stress here it's, again from a the guitarist's view is just how massively uncool digital delay effects were until the edge came along and used them yeah and now digital delay i mean certainly no post-rock without digital delay fucking hell you take digital layer or digital delay <laughs> away and post-rock doesn't exist shoegaze mm. is vital for um that obviously extends to elements of black gaze and so on and so forth i mean you know you can draw a parallel here between death heaven and new too and people mm. i don't think really appreciate that but pre you too digital delay was not cool at all it was like considered a bit of a um there's plenty when you get sort of multi-effects units as a guitarist there are there are loads of really cool things that you can play with and then there's a whole bunch of effects which i don't know just sound like a an alien being fucked by a fridge or something like that you know just stuff which like you're just never gonna fucking use and i think digital delay was a bit like that pre um the edge using it loads 
and loads and loads and and he kind of he kind of made that effect what it is today oh definitely he's a definitive you know person of i remember my cousin my cousin was a big guitarist and a really sort of big blues fan and when i told him how much i like you two he was like oh the yeah, edge he plays like one note and lets it ring out for ages he does and it sounds great <laughs> yeah and i was like hmm and i suppose you need you can't really play like i mean i bought when i was learning to play guitar i bought the joshua tree tab book all right. I looked at it and I was like, oh, well, you just hold one note and you just kind of strum it every sort of couple of seconds. Pretty and much. You need, you need that. You can't really play it unless you have all the effects that go with it. And you have to have the digital delay. It doesn't you work. Do. Yeah. You ne- and you do. Obviously, you need to have that. And it's. I guess that's kind of frustrating as a young guitarist wanting to be able to play these songs. But at the same time, it means that no one can play those songs that like like you i I would i would suggest these days if you're a young guitarist and you don't have a digital delay in your effects rig you're missing a big trick personally i mean there's going to be the odd band here and there where you're not going to need digital delay at all airborne (laughs) you yeah airborne's probably a good example but (laughs) but i think in 90 80 percent of bands rigs these days if you don't have a digital delay in there you're lacking something and that mm. that was not the case pre u2 at mm. all no. I, I i there is a fact i'm sort of bringing this up from the re- boggy recesses of my mind and i will probably get this wrong but i'm pretty certain that sales of digital effects pedals rocketed after as a direct result of the edge i'm pretty sure that's true i i'm not gonna pluck figures out my ass because i can't remember how much but it's something like 10 times as much or something like that you know during the 80s and that is pretty much single-handedly down to the edge yeah it wouldn't surprise me in any way whatsoever um which kind of brings me back to adam clayton because if you're talking about the edge as a dj as a colorist as somebody who adds text to these songs just think for a second about all of the rhythmic riff parts that you think of from this album i mean the big one the big obvious one being the opening of with or without you Mm -hmm. you think of the bass Mm -hmm. there's not many bands that you think of where you go oh the bass is is the lead is is the the instrument that sucks you in it's meant to be this in so many but not obviously not every band you know we've all heard the red hot chili peppers um but in so many bands the bass guitar is not meant to be the standout instrument that you that plods along in your head when you think of those songs absolutely not but in so many of these it is and adam clayton is a a brilliant bass player not a particularly showy bass player not not a particularly um you know technically not a kind of technical wizard um, or kind of slap happy, you know, sh- you know, showy bass player in the way that Flea is or the way it, like Matey Boy from Dream Theater is. What's his name? John Myung. Um, Matey Boy. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, Matey, Matey Boy. Boy. Yeah. Um, but he's certainly the most effective. It, it's a similar thing to what when people say Lars Ulrich mm-hmm. is not a good drummer. And you go, well, Lars Ulrich, you can remember or don't. Da, 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 like those da, 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 you know, you know the, those those little fills and rolls that he brings into it are some of the most famous bits of metallica 
Undoubtedly. And those bass lines that Adam Clayton brings to, I mean, to, not from this album, but the bass line to New Year's Day oh. is that song. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it absolutely is. I mean, bringing in an example that is from this record, you know, the with or without with or without you, as I've already said, is my second favorite song on this record. I mean, actually, if you approach me on some days, I'd say it's my favorite. I fucking love with or without you. And with or without you mm -hmm. is a very simple, oft repeated chord pattern structure. Um, it's the one. What's the what was the band that did fucking 80 pop songs in four minutes kind of thing? Because they're all the same chords. Uh, that oh, YouTube, that YouTube sensation thing. Well, right? oh, three minute songs or four minute songs is called. That, yeah, yeah so something along those lines, where the, where yeah. they basically do something silly like sixty songs in four minutes, and um, the chord progression that they are using is the with or without you chord progression. It's been used ad infinitum over and over and over and over again. But if you compare all those songs that have used that chord progression, with or without you, is one of the top ones by far. It, it it shows we use the example for baroness what's the song on the baroness album which is very repetitive um when you sing it like that i have absolutely no idea <laughs> that was my club style and interpretation of you it you mean um, what on purple oh no on uh, golden gray it's like the sixth or seventh uh... track Oh, um, fuck it. Uh, I can't remember. Do you know, I've not listened to that for ages, that Golden Grey. We praised that song because mm. whilst it is taking a very familiar pattern, which you've heard a million times before, it's what Baroness do in and around that song that makes it so wonderful. And with, with or without you is exactly the same. It's exactly the same thing. Mm. Um, it's unbeatable, that song, especially when... Uh, when um the edge really lets rip towards the end with that digital delay stuff and uh, bono's yeah. giving it away giving it away giving it away or giving yeah. himself away giving yourself away it's a great uh, it's, i mean it's one of those songs i mean it, i've spoken a lot about big songs the big you know we spoke about design for life we spoke about park life which you've i don't know if you've heard that yet but we did um and i've always said you know there are the big songs that you don't want to hear ever again like like I've, i always say i never want to hear sweet child of mine yep. ever again don't want to um and i kind of thought with or without you was one of those ones where i was like i've actually heard it so many times now that when it comes on i go oh i don't want to hear this and because i've had to listen to it for this it's become one of those ones where i go oh no this is fucking brilliant yeah like i'm back round to go and it's great it used to be my favorite on the album i thought it was just so 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 brilliant well um, due, due to my entry point being the best of 1980 to 1990 with you two the three songs i've heard from this record by far the most are where the streets have no name i still haven't found what i'm looking for and with or without you and of those three songs i think all three of those songs are brilliant in their own way but with or without you is the standout for me out of those three tunes I, I, it just I it's 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 so simple and it's so effective um we'll talk about simplicity and effectiveness um with one as well uh yeah. on part two but it is so it's just so undeniable i think that mm. song it's brilliant it's a teen spirit 
it's it also is. the same chord progression as Teen Spirit, more or less. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, uh, it was also their first US number one single. Spent three so. weeks at the top of the chart. Um, their band manager, Paul McGuinness, who I haven't really mentioned yet, surprisingly, this is no. a big part of their career. Um, he didn't want to release With or Without You. He said he didn't think it was going to work. The band was certain it would be number one, and they were proved right. So, um, yeah, I mean... As, as integral a part as Paul McGuinness has had in U2's career, and I'm not saying he hasn't, but there have been a few times where he's gone one way the band have decided to go the total opposite way and they've proved him right <laughs> yeah 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 um so i mean we should again in i think in terms of uh i mean i said the first side but in terms of a one two three streets have no name so what we're looking for with or without you uh, i'm struggling to think of a record that starts with three more well known and recognizable songs as that give me some other album that starts with three songs that are as famous not even saying as good but just as famous i mean even when let's take the biggest selling album of all time ever michael jackson's thriller right michael jackson's thriller starts with want to be starting something baby be mine and the girl is mine those are the first three songs on it mm. i mean no contest i mean it then goes into thriller beat it billy jean and that is comparable yeah. And probably, Definitely. probably big, probably bigger, probably just bigger. I think the fact I, that I even went probably is. I think something. I, I, yeah, I think I think if Thriller did start with those three songs, then I'd have to give it to Mr. Jackson. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's Joshua Tree all the way. I mean, let's take again just another example of a massive, massive one. This is a little bit harder. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band, the title track with a little help from us friends, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Okay. Now, on the strength, the, the second two, massive, undoubtedly. I, just for the title track itself, I think the Joshua Tree, bigger. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Undoubtedly bigger. Like, yep. And I mean, you know, we're not picking, this isn't us talking about fucking glass jaw again and going oh you know the opening three songs are uh, that's so great that opening four track run is really great um let's put it up against you know dillinger or fucking the blood brothers or something we're sure. talking about the biggest albums ever made by any artist in history yes and we've picked two of the biggest albums ever made we picked the biggest album ever made <laughs> and the joshua tree's got on both instances one two three punch out the gate is more instantly recognizable than either of them but how does it fare against dinosaur pileup steve oh i know that is a hard <laughs> one isn't it um <laughs> thrash metal cassette is is thrash metal cassette better than where the streets have no name that is a tough one is Backfoot better than i still haven't found what i'm looking for i actually i think Backfoot probably is better than i still haven't found what i'm looking for oh dear all right well, let's move on um yeah but mate i mean i i guess we should probably talk about those others that we've spoken about with or without you where the streets have no name and i still haven't found what i'm looking for are again absolutely played to death absolutely omnipresent in radio and in popular culture in general uh i still think both of them are i mean particularly where the streets have no name i think is fucking amazing oh it's such a great a girl great opener i was gonna say particularly um i still haven't found what i'm looking for actually yeah. um but i do love where the streets the have no name um mm. 
I adore the um, something that's different from this version and the best of version, um, which I had to get used to for a little while. It's just the the intro for Where the Streets Have No Name. It's like a minute and a half before Bono yeah. even starts singing on the Joshua Tree version. And uh, I've not actually listened to the best of for quite a long time. Um, but I certainly don't recall the intro being as long as that. I'm pretty sure it's a sort of single edit. Um, Probably, yeah. I mean, I've got the... It, it's it's five minutes, 38 seconds on the album, and I think you get a good minute and a bit. But um, but, but the build, I mean, as a post-rock fan, as a, as a post-rock fan, you've got to appreciate the... The way the edges guitar just goes from ding 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 to like ding 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 and the whole band like come in when Adam Clayton's bass comes in and it starts to run. I mean, mate, fucking insane. I'm glad you mentioned the PR word and not me, but yeah, undoubtedly, this is a undoubtedly people were looking at this and then formed post rock bands and stared at their shoes for the next twenty years. Undoubtedly undoubtedly yeah uh brilliant uh brilliant song i mean uh, any others that you'd like to kind of mention and i think we probably will mention bullet the blue sky in a bit because that's quite a heavy one we've definitely gone over my favorites undoubtedly um the first three uh in god's country and exit would probably be my top top tracks on this record yeah Mm -hmm. um so i'm happy to go wherever you want to go really okay um uh, I think Red Hill Mining. T- I mean, actually, I, I think Red Hill Mining Town is a really good opener to um, to side to to side two as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really really good song. Don't know how you feel about that. I like it. Uh, isn't it the only song they never played live from this record? I believe that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bit I don't of a surprise. Know why that? I don't know why that would um, why that would uh, that would feel like it would really work well live, particularly the I end. Agree. Yeah, I agree. I, I guess they just didn't get round to it, I suppose. No, that's fair. Um, they got I a mean, lot of songs. As far as tours go, the well, I don't want to jump it, apart, but the, the Joshua Tree tour, considering how big the record is, um, it was uh, shortish. Yeah. If you compare it to, say, the Use Your Illusion tours and stuff like that mm. a few years later, um, I think they did just over 100 dates, which is not nothing. <laughs> Obviously, it's quite a lot. But uh, and they obviously played to millions of people, but considering the size of the record, uh, in comparison, it's a relatively short tour. Well, I think there are mitigating circumstances as to why that is that we're Absolutely. going to talk about in a minute. Absolutely. So yeah. yeah. So anyway, overall, I mean, there's nothing on this record which I don't think is at least very, very good. The weak, um, the weakest song on this record is probably an eight out of ten. I would say. Yeah, uh, a really, really quite brilliant record in case you hadn't noticed. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the release of the record. As I said, released on the 9th of March, 1987, it went straight in at number one on the UK album chart, sold 235,000 copies in its first week, making it the fastest selling album in the UK of all time. At that time, it was certified platinum within 48 hours of its release. Uh, two weeks at number one, 28 weeks in the top 10 and 201 weeks in the top 40, which is pretty fucking amazing. In the United States of America, it ended at number seven. Three weeks later, it became their first ever US number one, where it stayed for nine weeks. It spent 120 weeks in the Billboard Top 200, 35 of them in the top 10. It was certified double platinum just two months later. It was the first album to sell one million CDs in the United States of America. Uh, the CDs was happening there. Remember them? They oh, were new then. I oh. still love them. 
Shiny uh, plastic number- discs of heaven. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Uh, it reached number one in over 20 countries. Those countries included the likes of Canada, Switzerland, France, Germany, Sweden, New Zealand, and Holland. At the time of recording, it sold 25 million copies plus worldwide. It's gone platinum in 13 countries and diamond in two. It's gone nine times platinum in the UK, selling around 2.8 million records. Five times platinum in Australia, selling around 350,000 copies. Three times platinum in Spain, selling around 300,000 copies. Two times platinum in both Germany and France, a combined total of 1.6 million diamond in canada selling a million diamond in the u in the usa um that's 10 million plus sales and that was actually certified diamond 10 million plus sales in 1995 so you might want to chuck in a few more since then um it was also reviewed almost universally uh positively as well um let's start renfrey as we've never started with our old mate robert christigan before have we um uh, in his music round of the time, he gave the album a B, which is not bad for it's Robert Christigou. It's not bad. It's not bad. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if this was really Robert Christigou because <laughs> he also, in that week, his music roundup, he gave Eye Against Eye by Bag Brains B and Warehouse by Husker Du an A minus. Oh dear. He was having an off week, wasn't he? <laughs> I mean, anyway, look, it's still a shite review. Anyway, he says, <laughs> let it build and ebb and wash and thunder in the background and you'll hear something special, mournful and passionate, stately and involved. Read the lyrics and you won't wince. Tune in Bono's vocals and you'll encounter one of the worst cases of significance ever to afflict a deserving candidate for superstardom. Mm. What's that mean? I think he's trying to say that he thinks Bono's a bit pretentious. I mean, fuck me, he can talk. Part, Fucking hell. Yeah, part kettle black. Um, but I believe that's what he's getting at. And, um, you know, I can't argue with him uh, in this particular case. He's a bit pretentious. Um, I think the pretend, you know, Bono at the height of his pretentiousness wouldn't emerge until much later, uh, <laughs> arguably. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, maybe yeah. I don't know. It's a, that, that's a tricky one, actually. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, pot, black, kettle. Yeah. So anyway, Q gave it five stars. The enemy was super positive about it, uh, although I couldn't find that review in full, as were the Rolling Stone. Entertainment Weekly gave it an A. The New York Times praised it, um, but was less pleased with Bono's performance, calling it a curious loss of individuality. Bono's yeah, I remember reading that. I don't feel that at all. I think Bono is very... St- very definitely bono uh on yeah. this record and i think um some people will love that and some people will hate it and that's fine mm. but um we've talked about individuality quite a lot on this show certainly recently and i don't think there's a loss of uh, individuality on this album e- even if you're just taking the vocals into account i no, I don't. I don't i don't get that at all to be honest yeah um there's also the grammys as well so the band won the best rock uh, best rock vocal performance uh beating yes heart lost lobos and the georgia satellites seems pretty easy doesn't it mm. that's that seems quite unfair mm. um uh, where the streets have no name lost out to paul simon's graceland in the best record category um and enough. they lost out to um best song to a song called Somewhere Out There by James Horner and Barry Mann, um, which is actually, I I was like, what even is that? 
And then I found out it's a song from the film, An American Tale, you know, the cartoon about an immigrant mouse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know. <laughs> I was going to say, it, well, James Horner's a film composer. I know that much, but I, yeah, yeah, okay. Wow. So it's okay. Joan Bears and some other dude I've never heard of before, but I actually, uh, I went and found the video for it on YouTube to watch that. And look, mate, I like An American Tale. First one's great. You know what I mean? It's another. It's another um, Irish immigrants go to America, thing, yes, isn't it? So it it's is. not. I'm sure you two weren't that fussed about losing out to that. But no. Um, but bear one where the streets have no name. Really? Well, I can't. Rec- really? I can't. That? I can't recall the song specifically, but um, probably not. Um, although, uh, you know, quick, quick side note on American Tale. Fuck me. What? A, what a film. So emotional. For a long time. It's so mm. emotional. Well, my, it's one of the Don Bluths, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the reason I even knew that it was that is because I said that. I was like, I don't know what that song is. And my girlfriend said, that's from the American Tale. And she was like, "We, me and my brother, it makes us cry all the time. And then I watched it and she sung along. She sung it to me right in my face. I think an um, American Tale would probably make both of us cry at the moment. I mean, the land before time would make us fucking weep mm. buckets, I think. Um, yeah. They're good, those films. Five or Goes West, though, can go fuck itself fucking I don't think i don't think i ever saw it atrocious um, sequel <laughs> so i don't really know what what song of the year and 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 record of the year what's different i mean i don't understand the grammys it's the grammys nothing makes okay. sense but now this is the one renfrey they won the prestigious album of the year award on the night which is pretty cool but the competition that they beat off Bad by Michael Jackson, Sign of the Times by Prince, Whitney by Whitney Houston, also Trio by Dolly Parton, Emmylou Harris, and Linda Ronstadt, fine. But, mate, Mm, to be beating Michael Jackson and Prince and Whitney Houston, I mean, it's crazy. And they actually, if you go back and watch this whole, like, you two are so serious, they don't have a sense of humour, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, When they won the best rock performance... um, Adam Clayton was actually in the toilet when they won and he actually halfway through their speech, he runs on stage and does his flies up in front of everyone. So he's not really taking it that seriously. Um, and the edge did the speech, got a list of people that he wanted to thank that included their manager and management team, Island records, college radio, Jack Healy and Amnesty international, Desmond Tutu, Martin Luther King, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, Walt Disney, John the Baptist, George Best, Gregory Peck, Batman and Robin, James T. Kirk, Lucky the Dog, Pee Wee Herman, Eddie the Eagle, sumo wrestlers around the world, and of course, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> that, was, that was the speech that they gave. It's um, funny. So, it's funny. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty funny. And it actually, when they won Album of the Year, obviously Bono got to do the speech for Album of the Year at that point. And um, he was just really quite sort of... Uh, he kind of... Tr- he, there's a, a seesaw between his sarcasm and slightly pretentiousness about it. Mm. And I think it's maybe something that people don't, they would just focus on one half of it. So he sort of said, this is all very Celtic. Um, He said, it's very hard to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders, saving the whale and organizing world leaders, but we enjoy our work. Um, I mean, he's obviously not being serious there at all. Um, He says, it's hard when there are 50 million people watching, not to mention South Africa and what's going on there and the remarkable work of people like Desmond Tutu. But tonight is maybe not the night for me to do that. So I'll talk about the music. You two set out to make soul music. And that isn't about whether you are black or white, uh, which obviously Michael Jackson was listening to that um, as a a bit of inspiration because a few Mm -hmm. years later 
you know, he stole that. Uh, the instruments <laughs> you play or whether you use a drum machine or not, it's whether you choose to reveal or conceal. And without it, Prince would be nothing more than a brilliant song and dance man. But he is, but he's much more than that. Bruce Springsteen would be nothing more than a great storyteller, which he is, but he's much more than that. Without it, you two would probably be getting better reviews in the Village Voice, but we wouldn't be here. <laughs> That's so, a direct, you know, direct um, he's re- referencing Robert Christigo, I'm assuming. Yeah, 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 he is. Um, so, you know, like, obviously there's a slight level of seriousness and pretense there, but they were still, at this point, I think, clued in enough to be kind of to, to, and self-aware enough to be funny one thing i will say about that is i think if you were looking at it at a very surface level and maybe coming in with a predisposed bias that bono is a pretentious wanker um you might look at that and take it all very very seriously and think that he's being serious um yeah. i think that interpretation is likely wrong i haven't i haven't actually seen the footage that you're talking about so i can't um firmly stamp one way or the other but certainly certainly bono is taken seriously far more than he should be probably by mm. you two haters yeah definitely yeah. definitely and that is a you know it's a, that's a massive thing for them to get that and I, I thought it was a great speech personally um so in terms of the legacy of the record uh, according to acclaimed music it's ranked as the 40th best album ever made in an aggregate of uh, critics lists in 1997 the guardian had it at number 57 at the um of the top 100 albums ever made giving various votes to musicians and music industry insiders in 2006 time magazine included it in a list of the 100 best albums of the magazine's lifetime uh, in the same year it topped q's list of best albums of the 80s rolling stone placed it at number 27 in its list of the 125 best albums ever made in 2012 in 2014 it was put into the grammy hall of fame for being part of our musical social and cultural history uh, in 2018 Pitchfork included it at number 47 on its list of the 200 best albums of the 80s. Uh, whilst and, in the and they, re- hate, they hate music as well. Uh, they fucking hate music. So, you know, you think they'd be fucking well down on this. But oh. in a retrospective review of the album, when the deluxe box set was released, Pitchfork gave it an 8.9 score, which is... And if you read it, it's actually the most scathing positive review I think I've ever read. It basically comprises of a couple of paragraphs of grudging admittance that the actual album is really good, but basically slagging off their earlier work and then putting the boot into exactly where you and I are about to go next. Uh, Here's a little quote from it. It says, While the haters were already on board, it was with their next album, Rattle and Hum, that the group's ego finally overtook their ambitions and it took a near fatal break and the resounding triumph of Acting Baby to set the band back on track. But to this day, the YouTube's U2's Joshua Tree breakthrough and in particular Bono's insistence on living up to the messianic role his fans and admirers foisted upon him still resonates as a lingering source of scorn suspiciousness and ridicule as for the doc which is included as a documentary included in uh, the uh, in the, the deluxe reissue as for the doc it plays like a rattle and hum test run that will leave you throwing things at your screen as the band goes shopping signs autographs and poses for photos there is however a rare glimpse of U2's sense of humor that teases their future neo-ironic rebirth hidden on the dvd footage of frames 
uh, footage of the famous Dalton Brothers, the band's alter ego, uh, who opened for a few dates on the Joshua Tree tour, replete with uh, Adam Clayton in drag. But after a couple of minutes of their shtick, you'll want to throw stuff at them too. Um, the band often uh, would dress up and be, pretend to be a country and western band called the Dalton Brothers. Um, yeah, because they have a load of they don't and, they don't have any sense of humour, do they? You yeah, exactly. See, so. Yeah, they they definitely don't. Um, that isn't something so that Maynard, Maynard James Keenan would do or something like that. That isn't the sort of thing, you know, Pussifer, that's not taking that to the nth extreme in any way, shape or form, is it? No, not Sarcasm. <laughs> um, so there you go. I mean, that kind of, even Pitchfork, who were like 8.9, they still went, yeah, but fucking rattle and hum. And I think that is a big old a big old opinion <laughs> of uh of why people kind of lump this album that album and that feeling tends to get kind of smudged together and it certainly felt like it did maybe at the time in the straight aftermath of it um so we should talk about rattle and hum in a second but before we do um Renfrey, plenty of people have covered songs from this record in fact uh where the streets have no name has been covered by 126 different artists fucking hell fucking loads of people um including the pet shop boys 30 seconds to mars um and a super group collective of serge tanky and flea tom morello brad wilk and maynard james keenan oh mixed wow bag <clears throat> bit of a mixed bag oh. um yeah Pet Shop Boys one is a little bit too tongue-in-cheek, even for them. Even for the Pet Shop Boys, it's a little bit too camp for me, their cover of Where the Streets Have No Name, which goes into um, I love you, baby, but if it's quite all right, and gets like, well, camp, it's mm. actually a bit jarring. Um, uh, other songs, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, has been covered by Chumbawamba and Disturbed. Didn't bother listening to either of them. Um <laughs> With or Without You has been covered by Jawbreaker, Therapy, Keen, and Imagine Dragons, amongst others. Uh, did you listen to the Therapy 1992 live version of it? I list, I list, I don't think it was a live version, but I listened to it. Yeah, it was. Oh, fuck. It was live, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. I listened to a version by Therapy. I thought it was fucking amazing. It yeah. was so fair fucks to therapy like really like taking that song and making it something quite ugly. discordant industrial yeah. Yeah. ugly deliberately out of time deliberately out of tune um yeah it's it's a it's brilliant the therapy if you ever get a chance it's fucking brilliant the therapy as, so, cover. I, as someone who has a mild interest in math rock i was really impressed with them sort of deliberately going out of time and yeah. but, but yet still staying in time um yeah it's fucking it's very impressive it's really yeah, good it's really good did you listen to the jawbreaker version of the song yeah i did uh chucking in skulls by Min uh by misfits yeah in the middle of it it's not even i mean is it strictly a with or without you cover they kind of start playing with or without you for about a minute and a half two minutes and then just go into yeah. a bunch of other stuff um it's fun it's not something that i think is essential uh, i like jawbreaker a lot but i was like oh mm. That's a shame. I thought you'd do something a bit more interesting with it than that. But uh, it's all right. Yeah. Um, I didn't bother listening to Keen or Imagine Dragons, to be honest, because why would you? Um, you mentioned short. You mentioned Anthrax covering Exit. Not bad. Yeah. John Bush proving he is a million times better the singer than Joey Belladonna is. Definitely. Um, yep. A song that 
is suitable for a metal band to play. But I did have, when I saw it, I was like, oh no, it's going to be Joey Belladonna screeching like he does in their cover of New Noise. It's going to be yeah. awful. But it's it's actually it's actually pretty good. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. It is pretty good. Um, the other one for us metal fans as well, Bullet the Blue Sky, which feels like the obvious one to cover if you're a metal band. Yes. P.O.D. and Sepultura both covered that band. Yes. I remember hearing both of them when they came out first time around. Uh, not for me, to be honest. Not for me. I've not heard the Sepultura one. Uh, Derek you, Green. You asked me to listen to the P.O.D. one. And I was you pleasant, quite like it, don't you? I was pleasantly surprised, is what I would say. Quite like it. Mm, I'm not going to return to it. Um, but I had an image in my head of how bad it would be and it didn't sink to that level. Um, I don't think it's great, um, but I thought they did a passable version of it, especially considering P.O.D. are not a band that I've ever had all that much love for. Um, Here's my problem with the P.O.D. one, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of a good idea. I mean, the Sep- I think the Sepultura one is messy. It's not great at all. The P.O.D. one is better. But when it gets to that like all the colors or a royal flush, like a rolls on a thorn book. I thought, you know, you're a rapper, mate. You're a rap metal band. Bono's not a rapper. And yet he makes that bit, which people kind of do sneer at a bit. Like, yeah. You know, so this guy comes up to me, his face is red, like a rolls on a thorn book. Like yeah. that kind of spoken word thing. If you're going to do that as a rap metal band and turn it into like a rap, which you could do. You could. He, he's got no flow at all in that bit. It sounds rubbish. So, I agree. It gave me a newfound respect for the original, actually. Um, Mm. I would have been one of those sneering voices probably before we went in on this record properly Um, because I didn't I didn't love Bullet in the Blue Sky um, previously but I don't know just listening to this record sort of every other day for the past two or three weeks I've actually really warmed to it Um, and also seeing live versions of it um, we're about to go on to Rattle and Hum but um, yeah I actually think it's quite a powerful song now and yeah Mm. comparing the POD version and the U2 version it does give you a newfound approach appreciation for bono's delivery of it which i did i didn't like initially but now i'm kind i'm kind of okay with it yeah Um, yeah yeah i think it's good personally and since you mentioned rattle and hum room free rattle and hum of course is the break point between the two records that we're talking about and i think it's not really one that we can just go and then they did rattle and hum and come back to it rattle and hum informs act and baby massively Rattle and Hum was born from a continuation of the Joshua Tree. So I think we need to focus on Rattle and Hum a little bit before we move on to the second part. Well, I say a little bit, quite a lot, actually. Um, Bono said in 1989, they say in the 80s that rock and roll is dead. I don't think it's dead, but if it's dying, it's because groups like us aren't taking enough risks. You know, make a movie. Put yourself up against what's out there. Robocop and Three Men and the Baby. That's great for rock and roll, not just for you two. I think you've got to dare. Sure. Um, So the album came out on the 10th of October, 1988. So, you know, just over a year since the Joshua Tree came out. Uh, You know, a year and a bit, a year and a half. Um, And the film followed on the 27th of October. So it was designed to be 
a further exploration of this newfound love of country music and blues music. It was originally going to be half a concert movie and half a look at the band at the time, which it sort of still is. So, you know, it's got them going to Graceland. It's got them going to a church in Harlem to collaborate with a gospel choir yeah. on where I still haven't found what I'm looking for. It's them going to Sun Studios in Memphis to record Angel of Harlem. Them touring with B.B. King and writing When Love Comes to Town with him. Um I think it sort of turns into three quarter concert movie, quarter documentary, doesn't it? I yeah, think that's I think much, that's yeah. what we get. But yeah. So a whole bunch of stuff from the tour they were on was kind of recorded from the tour, but the live shows were filmed in this kind of black very stark black and white. And I think the band were put like and a lot of people, a lot of the, the sort of the dislike of um of the film and the like some of the live footage from the film is that you don't really see the crowd. And you can't really tell about the grand. So it looks like they're playing in the shadows all the time. You can't really tell where they are because it's mm-hmm. all black and white. It's very dark. It's quite um, dark, yeah. It is quite dark. Uh, they played the McNichol Sports Arena in Denver on the 7th of 8th of November in 1987. The first night, the band had a bit of a mare. Um, and there's footage of one of the documentaries I watched. Bono's going mad about the camera crew. The people filming it um, are getting in the way of the actual show that they are putting on with the people who just paid to see it and is... It's telling that kind of unlike Red Rocks, there's very little crowd shots mm. in Rattle and Hum. There's mm. very little of them actually interacting with the audience. Um, I is that such a terrible thing? I get I quite. Think, f- I think. I think if you, I think if you are watching a concert movie, you kind of want to feel yeah. like you're in the concert. Whereas I, I like my thing with Rattle and Hum is that. It's so dark and you very rarely see where they are. It just feels like, like I say, they're playing in shadows quite a lot of it. I understand what you're saying. I kind of think one of the purposes of a concert movie is to get you a seat that you cannot have any other way. Um, get, getting you a seat on the stage, practically. And actually, in that respect, I think Rattle and Hum's very successful. Yeah, I guess so. That's yeah. my that's my counter argument to it. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I get what you're saying, but hmm. so I, I, I get I get of... really fed up of concert footage where there's too much uh, shots of the crowd because it, it it's kind of like if if I were in that crowd, I wouldn't be looking behind me. I'd be looking at the band, you know. But you just feel like you were in a crowd, whereas if you just sat at home and you just see somebody on the telly, they could be in a studio, an empty studio on their own, and it doesn't yeah. give the kind of the illusion of being there live. You kind of need to be aware that it is filled with people and it's live. Yeah. I mean, and also seeing kind of, for example, you know, Bruce Dickinson at Rock in Rio and it pans back to see the whole crowd and you go, wow, fucking hell, yeah. that is great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's nothing like that in Rattling Hum. And that's probably my biggest um, criticism on it. But, you know, uh, I feel like I'm being very nice because it was fucking panned. Mm. Not so much critically at the time, really. I mean, when you look back at the original reviews, some of them are okay. But the backlash that had been brewing after the Joshua Tree really hits its peak here. Um, for example, it was originally given 8 out of 10 in the NME. Um, they have subsequently struck that review from history and replaced it with a 4 out of 10 review instead that calls it the worst album by a major band in some years um the village voices tom Car- uh, tom carson said by almost any rock and roll fan standards rattling hum is an awful record but the chasm between what it thinks it is and what the half-baked overweening reality doesn't sound attributable to pretension so much as monumental know-nothingness 
Um, David Frick in taking Rolling a, Stone. Taking a leaf out of Robert Christopher's yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. David Frick, in his end-of-year review for Rolling Stone, said, this is a mess with a mission, but a mess nevertheless. The New York Times... It's a good uh, sentence. This yeah. is a mess with a mission, but a mess nevertheless. Yeah. Um, the New York Times said, "Grab uh, the, the band tried to grab every mantle in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame before saying what comes across in song after song is sincere egomania. Robert Christogu called it underrated if grandiose. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, so go is. on, Renfrew. What, what do you, I, I made you watch Rattle and Hum. You uh, made what, me watch it. Yeah, I, but, yeah. Well, I thought it was integral to this that we, <laughs> I, we did. I, absolutely. Um, what, do I, what did I make of it? Yeah, what did you make of it? I thought uh, that it was perfectly fine, <laughs> all told. Um, let's draw a few comparisons with other things you've made me watch. Pink Floyd, The Wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly prefer it to Pink Floyd, The Wall. I think it's 10 times better than Pink Floyd, The Wall. Um, I was fairly i i was all geared up to watch a much maligned concert film maybe in the same tradition as the song remains the same by led zeppelin for example mm-hmm. another much maligned concert film certainly think rattle and hum's better than the song remains the same and i'm a far bigger led zeppelin fan than i am a u2 fan mm-hmm. um i thought there were several moments on rattle and hum which justified its existence um yep. I think the so-called embarrassing moments aren't that embarrassing, really. Mm-hmm. I love seeing the footage with them with B.B. King, for example. It's fucking yep. awesome. Seeing B.B. King as a sort of 60-year-old man was really cool. Uh, I I did not mind it at all. I thought it's 98 minutes long. It went relatively quickly i thought it was absolutely fine i don't think it's a masterwork by any stretch of the imagination but i don't think it's that bad at all mm. i think i like it more than you do by the sounds of it oh no no I, now so here's the thing with rattling hum right rattling hum my mum found a copy of rattling hum on video in the charity shop in the village oh, yeah. that i'm from and bought it for me when i was about 12 right and i'd never listened to you two before then really i was aware that they were a band and i was just sort of getting into music and i became obsessed with them after that they became my favorite you know at that point i was like oh i really like i'm starting to i liked queen and then i was like oh, i like this and that and but i became absolutely obsessed with them due to rattle and hum it was the first time i'd heard songs like bullet the blue sky and bad and especially sunday bloody sunday mm. in fact i don't give a fuck what anyone says the version in this film is incredible. When I right? was referring to there are moments uh, that justify its existence, that version of Sunday Bloody Sunday is the big one. Mm. 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 Now, oh yeah, let's go into that actually. because So it was re- recorded on the day um, of the IRA bombing, which killed 11 people at a Remembrance Day ceremony in the Northern Irish town of Enniskillen. The performance was so powerful that the band had said that they weren't sure that the song should have been used in the film. Um, After watching the film, they considered not playing the song on future tours, and they did actually um, stop playing the song for some years after this. Uh, Now, we'll talk about it in a minute. There are bits in Rat and Hum, which I rewatched with music critics eyes for the first time. They're pretty cringeworthy. 
pretty cringeworthy. For example, the mid-song run in Bullet the Blue Sky, to me, does come off as a bit forced and a bit rehearsed, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I felt like he was saying that every night. And that is, going back to that Live Aid performance, that is not what I want a band like U2 to sound like. Um, but there you know but but this particular clip i mean there's a bit in the film where where bono says that he doesn't think it should be in the film because the bombing will long since be forgotten and people will not understand how we felt on stage that day now i think the speech itself is incredible and i i'll read out we'll kind of go through it a bit like how we went through bad i suppose so um before the song starts, he says, so here we are, the Irish in America. The Irish have been coming to America for years now, going back to the Great Famine when the Irish were on the run from starvation and a British government that couldn't care less. Right up to today, there are more Irish immigrants in America than ever. Some legal, some illegal. Some run from high employment, some run from the troubles in Northern Ireland, from the hatred of the H-blocks, torture, and other run from wild acts of terrorism like the one we had today in a town called Enniskillen, where 11 people lie dead and many more injured on a Sunday bloody Sunday. And then the band start playing the song. Um, and that's good. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that is a like, whew, what a mm. powerful opening. Um, but halfway through the song, when it goes into that, like I say, that militaristic drum beat and everything stops and Bono addresses the crowd again and the genuine real anger that he has in his voice um, when he says, let me tell you something, I've had enough of Irish Americans who haven't been back to their country for 20 years and come up to me and talk to me about the resistance, the revolution back home and the glory of the revolution and the glory of dying for the revolution. Fuck the revolution. They don't talk about the glory of killing for the revolution. Where's the glory of taking a man from his bed and gunning him down in front of his wife and children? Where's the glory in that? Where's the glory in bombing a Remembrance Day parade of old age pensioners, their medals taken out and polished up for the day? Where's the glory in that? To leave them dying or crippled for life or dead under the, revel, un, under the rubble of the revolution that the majority of the people in my country don't want. Now, for me, again, to make that comparison like bad at Live Aid, that is so powerful and so real. And I remember watching that as a kid and thinking, I've never seen anything like that before you know i was just starting to get into guitar music and the guitar music of that time before i'd got into blur or offspring or green day or nirvana or any of that stuff it, it was the, the 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 boring the more boring back like you know I, I really like madness but you wouldn't have madness talking like that on stage Fuck you know me. i i you know my mate was playing me like um the beatles or you know, we'd watch like Pet Shop Boys live or, do you know what I mean? And you just, you just would never, ever, ever see anything like that. And the idea that this is some sort of egomaniacal ranting, I'm sorry, I'm just not having it. No. I'm just um, not having it. I had goosebumps just hearing you recite that speech. It's clearly, there are moments on Rattle and Hum that are clearly spontaneous and there are moments that are clearly not, to be fair. Yeah. And that is a moment that is clearly spontaneous. It's very much from the heart. Obviously, you and I come from a sort of metal background where we're used to seeing frontmen, front women uh, express their anger in a very, in a very obvious way. 
I think there's a restraint to the anger in the way that Bono's performing, which is actually as powerful, if not more powerful. Uh, there's a control to the anger, which is really quite searing, um, but very just as powerful as just to go back to the last special that I did, uh, Daryl Palumbo screaming his lungs out on everything everyone wants to know about silence, for example. Uh, it's just performed and delivered in a different way. And uh, I, I mean, that 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 10 minute footage is worth rattle and hum alone i'm kind of stunned that it wasn't at least mentioned more in some of the reviews mm. it's such it's such a moment it's incredible yeah. it's absolutely yeah. incredible it is and and again much like bad at wembley stadium at live aid i've never seen it performed anywhere else ever at any point with that level of with with as uniquely as that mm. and that to me says you two are you two are a real band of real people who really exist in these you know who are that like we love Ramstein, but there's not room in a Ramstein show if something like that had happened in you know to till Lindemann for him to be able to do that yeah whereas you two were able to do that and kind of much to their I mean, what became what became quite a difficult thing for them was them learning how to be a stadium band around this time because those moments, you know, when you are, I'm not going to say reliant on those moments, but when those moments happen so infrequently, um, trying to recreate them out of nothing is, you, if you can only do make those kind of gestures when they're really happening to you then and there, there are going to be so many other times where they just don't happen. Yeah. And I think maybe that's where the sort of those, those kind of criticisms of you two come up is because I don't want to go as far as to say that they're trying to kind of facilitate these things that they're angry about. I think they're genuinely angry about it, but you can tell the difference between the inner skin and bombing happened that morning and them going on stage that night and we wrote this song, but at the blue sky, and this is what it's about from a long time ago. You can tell. Yeah. Um, I think it gets a bad rap, Rat and Hum, to be honest. I mean, when you look at the songs that are played from the record that are the kind of the original material from it, songs like When Love Comes to Town, Desire, Desire was their first UK number one, Angel of Harlem, Silver, is gold, Silver and Gold, and especially, I mean, especially All I Want Is You, mm. which is possibly yeah. their best ballad yeah which closes the entire film and it's a fucking great song i think they got crucified because of the stuff that happens away from the stage and mm. away from the recording studio they look po-faced they look uncomfortable they look unhappy they look stressed out and they admitted later on that they were making a film whilst they were becoming the biggest band in the world for the first time. So they were literally learning how to play those spaces night after night after night. There's a clip in one of the outtakes from the movie where Bono's just making up the set list in soundcheck off the top of his head. And they're not writing it down. He's saying it to Larry Mullen. He's like, oh, and then we're going to be playing this and it's that. And I, hold on, I'll go back. Oh, it's um, MLK and then Sunday Bloody. And then and Larry's like, you just said it was. And so, you know, in the same way as a band like Pearl Jam, have taken years and years and years to build up to be like, you know, Eddie Vedder goes out and then he writes a set list down and they know what it is. You know, you have to be able to find your feet at doing that. And for them to be a stadium band, 
and they're just trying to remember their set list off the top of their head like they're going to play a half hour set in a pub mm. that's mental that's yeah. madness that's insane it's absolutely it's crazy mad. yeah mm. yeah um i completely and utterly agree with you i think rattle and hum is very maligned um unnecessarily um like i say i don't think it's an absolutely classic concert movie but certainly compared to many of its many of the things that get derided alongside it i think it's yeah i mean i've just picked examples from pink floyd and led zeppelin two of the biggest british bands of all time um both Glad of which you finally learned that about it led Ze- about pink floyd. <laughs> <laughs> um both of which are hugely inferior massively inferior to um to to this record uh to sorry to rattle and hum so yeah yeah i think so um there's a really great article from billboard that came out a couple of years ago which sums it up perfectly to me um it says 30 years later it's time for the skeptics to look beyond the allegations of bombast self-importance and idol worship levied at u2 by american journalists and dare to expear rattle and hum with fresh ears and you may appreciate the wonder felt by a 14 year old freshman who marched straight from the movie theater to the record store on the other side of the mall to pick up the cassette immediately after seeing it back in 1988 this is very much how i feel about the record i grew up in a house play dylan and the blues as i said but this felt genuine for the most part now with a lot more cynicism in my heart i can understand the criticisms but the music is sound they also have added a track um added in a track freedom from my people from the harlem street duo called satan and adam who they came across um on the pavement and who went on to have a full kind of full-blown music career um and if you read up about that band where they were before there's basically one man playing in his words to Oh, like his wino buddies and the other one was a student you two saw them on the street filmed them for a bit put them on their record and they went on to play they played like glastonbury and stuff like those two guys oh wow oh, i didn't know that <laughs> yeah and like same. that dude had been playing since the early 70s just playing on the street as a one-man band That's amazing. i mean you know very very um like very unfairly maligned i i i definitely think you know again like i say the sort of stuff that my mum listened to my mum listened to the blues a lot yeah. and listened to bob dylan and joined and folk music and dylan and you know and stuff my dad liked Jimi hendrix and stuff and i knew that sound but i'd never heard it in a contemporary setting in the way that i did when i heard rattle and hum yeah yeah absolutely and it just sort of made more sense to me um but it did affect the band massively. Um, it's interesting, just additionally, it's interesting um, how many of the Rattle and Hum songs made it onto the best of 1980 to 1990 as well. Um, they're all kind of, I don't know if you're familiar with that compilation. I remember, I, I don't own it, but I remember it because I owned all the albums. So I was like, well. They're all, yeah, yeah, sure. No, fair enough. But they're, they're all kind of sandwiched at the end almost um or i which was it's probably wise because they do stand out from the other material on that record but uh angel of harlem's on it desires on it um when love comes to town's on it uh there's yeah. as many songs from rattle and hum as there are from the joshua tree that's crazy it kind of is actually but but it's kind of crazy but also you can like they they work as great singles those they songs. do desires it's all i want is you on, all, all i want is all i want is you's on it as well isn't it it may well be i can't remember i've not dug it out for a long time yeah all i want is you's on it, it all is. i want is you there's actually yeah four songs at the end desire when love comes to town angel of harlem all i want is you there we go from rattle and hum all by the end 
So there's, I mean, there's more only, from Rattle There's only one song from The Unforgettable Fire. No, two songs from The Unforgettable Fire. Three songs from The Unforgettable Fire. <laughs> on it. One there's song only, from War. Only one song, one song from, from Boy. Yeah. Is there anything and from October? October? Only, only the title track of October. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy, that. Mm. It's bonkers. Pretty, pretty fucking crazy. Um, yeah. So, you know, as I said, though, it did massively affect the band. Paul McGuinness, the band's manager, said, I wasn't prepared for the difference in size of the movie campaign and the average record campaign. How all across America for a couple of weeks, you couldn't turn on your TV without getting U2 in your face. That's not the way records are marketed. It's much more subtle. And I think the band's old fans found it distasteful. The aftermath, the aftermath I think, quite honestly, was that no one wanted to hear about U2 for a while. Still, Desire went to number one in the UK, as I said, um, the album went in at number one in seven countries, including the US and the UK, and it sold 14 million copies, which for a misstep and a disaster, yeah, isn't really that bad no, at it's, all. It's all right. Um, I mean, it? it's, it's interesting how Paul McGuinness there was effectively outlining this sort of Coldplay effect that I talked about right at the beginning of this show. Um, I feel like the reason why people started to take against you two at this point is because you could not escape them. And that's when people tend to um, uh, take against artists. Um, happened with Frank Turner as well. No one really gave a crap about Frank Turner for ages. Um, he gets into Wembley and it gets to the point where his songs are on the radio quite often and people suddenly have a very strong opinion on Frank Turner one way or the other. Yep. You know, um, It's just that sort of tipping point effect i said on another mm. podcast podcast i've been reading the tipping point recently very obsessed, <laughs> yeah, yeah. very obsessed with them at the moment but, the, well, but that that fine. is exactly what it is it is and it's i think it's really super relevant to where we go next um because with the sound of all that noise in their ears the the band we're, we're getting affected by that you know what i mean like becoming more stressed depressed feeling like they were genuinely hated by the majority of people um and they weren't really happy as a unit either i mean there's a story that bono says his wife came to him and says you don't laugh like you used to anymore and told him that he was just serious all the time so you know that kind of planted a seed in his head i think that they needed to change somehow and um they did the love town tour in 1989 that's how the band ended the the 80s took bb king out of support with them um at the point depot in dublin on new year's eve that's where i first saw pearl jam was it mm -hmm. all right cool so with only four shows left of the entire joshua tree run he said on stage quite famously i was explaining to people the other night but i might have got a bit wrong this is just the end of something for you two and that's why we're playing these concerts and we're throwing a party for ourselves and you it's no d big deal it's just we have to go away and dream it all up again what exactly did they have to dream up? Well, that's for the next part. But let's sum up the Joshua Tree before we go into that. Um, to say the Joshua Tree is a classic seems like saying... The sun is hot. The, the sun is hot. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? It's one of the biggest, most recognisable records from any band in the history. And I'd say it's certainly comfortably the biggest record that we've covered so far is it podcasts mm. okay i was wondering about the wall that was the only thing i was wondering oh but... yeah that's a good point actually yeah sorry i forgot the wall unbelievably i mean <laughs> it's a very even... forgettable record shut up um <laughs> mm. i think the wall probably is 
Well, they, I mean, they're, they're, they're comparable, aren't they? Absolutely. I think OK Computer's kind of comparable as well. Yeah. Um, but there's not many... I don't think you could take either of those two records and just go, you know, name four songs off it. And people would go, oh, well, that's the one with Weather Streets. You know, like, this has the biggest stuff, I think. The most well-known stuff. Yeah, it. you're probably right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I was I was slightly hesitant thinking about OK Computer, but no, I think you're probably right. Mm. Um, I think it's a great album. I mean, a great album by a great band, and I think a rare case of art and commerce kind of coming together and making a genuinely great, unique statement mm. because it wasn't jumping on the bandwagon. It wasn't zeitgeisty. Um, and it's proof that this isn't all about show and ability. Some songs can just be built on feel and emotion and chemistry. And I think that's why those songs have connected with people so much. And I think that's why they still kind of continue to connect with people. Um, the idea that you two are kind of these fake egomaniacal dickheads. I can kind of understand it if you're just looking from afar. But I think to dive and delve so deeply into a history and to a type of music that they really weren't familiar with and that really wasn't that popular and that really was a massive risk to make it work on such a massive level. I really respect that. Absolutely. I mean, is the, Josh, is the Joshua Tree the best U2 album? It's not for me. I think it's fantastic, but it isn't their best record. But it's that rarest of things, I think, which is a superstar blockbuster record that sounds as big and as grand and as cinematic as the ambitions of its creators. And they did it on their first go and they ditched it almost immediately. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So, so almost know. like done on their first go and ditched in the same way that Metallica did that with um, uh, Hit the Lies. Kill them all, in a way. Yeah. You know, it was ditched very, very quickly. It's not quite the same, but, you know, it was ditched. This this thing that they perfected, this stadium rock, large landscape, wide cinematic sound that was aped over and over again by bands far weaker than them and has continued to be um this had this style of massive cinematic widescreen rock has not been bettered this particular nope. type um and there's a lot to be said for that i think this is a great album i don't think it's a flawless record at all and you know you just said it there it's not my favorite u2 album either certainly not mine it's not my favorite from the 80s and you know spoiler alert i prefer acting baby as we'll get on to but um, but this is undoubtedly an amazing record, which has some absolutely killer tracks. Um, it's 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 a masterpiece. It's fucking brilliant. It is. I think. I mean, one of the things that I probably will sum up far with far greater intensity in the second part is that people forget why they got into music, and they forgot what they forget why music connected with them. Mm. And music, you know, can be. It, does, it can be really simple and it can just be as 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 much as isn't this song lovely or isn't Absolutely. that baseline catchy or isn't this doesn't this just make you feel nice and i think so much is so much goes into the joshua tree so much kind of so much passion for and it's you know i i i personally think excitement 
for music is a really catchy and seductive thing. I think to hear people that are that have just found like when I talk to kids sometimes kids when I talk to people sometimes like I remember when I first started doing the Metal Hammer podcast and people come up to me and go oh my god I've just listened to Jane Doe for the first time yeah that's a really really beautifully seductive exciting thing I'm excited by other people's excitement of stuff and I'm not the biggest blues and country Americana fan in the world but hearing people who have just discovered it and can ape it and can reappropriate it and can make it so per- personal and permanent to them, I think is fucking brilliant. Well, that's the and thing. You take a song like In God's Country and those influences are undeniably there, but it's also still very undeniably you too. And actually, yeah. I pointed out In God's Country and actually I'm looking at the track list and actually you could do that with pretty much all of Every the songs. Every song. Every song, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, we'll get on to what comes next but i mean like i say for them to get that and to immediately ditch it and to kind of ditch it because people went stop doing that mm. um yeah i mean you think it's almost impossible to to have a go at something for the first time get it so right ditch it and then do something else for the first time you can't get that right twice in a row can you that seems impossible. Well, hey, that's for another, that's for the next part. Um, so thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, this isn't the end of the story. We are going to be giving you a second part um, about Acton Baby, but that is the story of the Joshua Tree. I'm going to leave this part, Renfrey. We'll, we'll see all of you later. We're going to leave this part, Renfrey, with um, a little teaser from Bono. Here's a a, a summation of um, of what's about to come from Bono. He said, if we're being accused of megalomania, then let's do some judo. Let's use the force of what's attacking us to defend ourselves. The limb had to come off. Let's chop down the Joshua tree. Mm. See you in part two.